Over 460 million people around the world have disabling hearing loss. Starkey Hearing Foundation provides hearing aids and hearing-related health care to millions of patients in over 100 countries. But they need your support to continue helping those in need. Give the gift of hearing by donating to the Listen In Campaign. Go to listenincampaign.org to donate today. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-I-N-C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N dot O-R-G. This is the MLW Radio Network. This episode of Primetime with Sean Mooney is brought to you by SeatGeek. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app, and because you're a listener of mine, you're going to get $20 off your first purchase when you use the promo code PRIMETIME. That's promo code PRIMETIME. Do it now. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to this very special edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney. Uh, We are now 29 episodes in, and so we thought it would be a great idea to put the best of edition of PTSM, as I like to call it, as we wrapped up 2017. Now, those of you who have been listening from the beginning know this podcast continues to evolve. It started out with me teaming up with the one and only Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the legendary a WWE Hall of Famer, who played a big part in launching this podcast. Uh, unfortunately, it turned out to be too difficult to fit into Hacksaw's very busy schedule, and uh, he decided uh, that he didn't want to participate anymore. So uh, and we decided we'd move on and we would have guests on every week. And since we've decided to do that, we've had some tremendous Uh, guests on the podcast, some of the biggest personalities from the world of professional wrestling from the greatest era of wrestling, the 80s and the 90s. And we have certainly had a great time doing it. Now, before we get to the best of primetime with Sean Mooney 2017, I want to tell you all about a great opportunity. If you love to go to live events and concerts, folks, let me tell you, there is no better way to get the absolute best seats to all those events then was SeatGeek. Now, one of the first things you should do as we start off this new year is download the SeatGeek app onto your mobile device, whatever it is. And once you do that, some of the best deals for seats is just a few finger taps away. And it gets even better. Because you are one of my listeners, all you have to do is use the promo code PRIMETIME and you're going to get $20 off your first purchase. Now, let me tell you how SeatGeek gets you those fantastic deals on tickets. SeatGeek searches multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. Plus, every purchase, every one of them, is fully guaranteed so that you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with absolute confidence. And, once again, best part about it all, just because you're one of my listeners, you get that very special deal. Because you listen to Primetime with Sean Mooney, you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app onto your mobile device and enter the promo code PRIMETIME. That's P-R-I-M-E-T-I-M-E, PRIMETIME. And you'll get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All righty. Now let's get to some of the best moments we've had on PRIMETIME. And we'll start with the podcast uh, that featured Hacksaw Jim Duggan when we... uh, Profile two of the greatest personalities to ever be a part of the WWF slash WWE, and who also, I believe, comprised the greatest announced team ever, and I mean that, in professional wrestling. Bobby the Brain Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon. Take a listen. 
I want to talk about, uh, you know, uh, not just announcers. I mean, there, there people have specific announcers. And, you know, as a, uh, when I was with the WWF, you heard all the time, like, who was the best announcer? But, you know, what I want to talk about it was who, what I believe, was one of the best announced teams ever. And it, and it took two to make this happen. And that was Bobby the Brain Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon. And uh, I think that, and I, and I said this uh, in our what we put out talking about the show is the most entertaining, I think, announced duo ever. And people may have, you know, everybody has their different opinions, but I was very close to both of them. And uh, what they had was, it was incredible magic. And a little background on both, you know, Bobby Heenan uh, was uh, uh, born Raymond Lewis Heenan in Chicago in 1944. And he uh, started in the business, wanted to just, you know, that, that's, it was never a question for him for a lot, a lot of these people. And, uh, and then you have a gorilla monsoon who was born, uh, you know, Robert James Morella, uh, who a lot of people don't realize, Jim, he was a fantastic amateur wrestler. And, uh, I think one of the reasons we got along so well, when he found out I was also born in Rochester, New York. So he, <laughs> he that, that was kind of our first connection, but he went to Ithaca. Uh, and in 1959, I, he was he got second in the NCAA uh, tournament. So he was quite an accomplished athlete as well. Uh, he was he a big man. Gorilla was a, a gorilla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he and started immortal, out, immortalized forever at WW with the gorilla position. I mean, yep. right before you go through the curtain to go out in front of the audience, you go through the gorilla <laughs> position because that's where he would always sit. It's been named after him and. You know, that's quite an honor. I mean, everybody knows the grill, gorilla position. Yeah, and he was there for for many many years. And I always remember, ding ding ding. That's what he would see when to start yeah, a match. Right, yep, yeah. start the match, get the bell going. <laughs> ding, 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 that's and, right, and, and give him the pencil. And yeah. uh, he was incredibly respected. Um, but right now, I want to focus on how he became teamed up with Bobby Heenan. And you know, he had a great uh, career. He started as uh, Gino Morella, which I wanted to mention that because a lot of people, I knew him as Gino. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure backstage, you knew him as Gino. Uh, that stuck with him. Although the gimmick that he had Gino Morella didn't last very long as the proud Italian. And then he became Gorilla Monsoon, this wild man from Manchuria. And he had a, a great career, uh, pretty much a lifer with the, you know, WWWF and then WWF. And, um, for, you know, 20 years. And he was very loyal to, Vince Sr. And for, you know, and, and before that loyalty, uh, when Vince took over, you know, in the early 80s, he basically rewarded him by giving him a lifetime contract. So, you know, uh, and he had shares in the company and he, Vince Jr. bought those out. And then with the stipulation that uh, he was going to have a lifetime contract with the, the WWF at the time. And then he, uh, you know, transitioned out of the ring and became an announcer. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people remember that, uh, you know, Gorilla was teamed with Jesse Ventura and uh, for the first five WrestleManias, except for that WrestleMania 2. Jim, you remember that WrestleMania 2 where they had people all over the place? They had uh, no, Nassau Coliseum. Yeah, I was yeah, still down to uh, Mid-South back then, so. Yeah, well, they had, they had uh, announced teams or they had venues in three different places in Chicago at the uh, Rosemont Horizon and uh, – Nassau Coliseum in New York and then in Los Angeles at the sports arena. C crazy event. That was, a, that, but that was really, that was amazing. But anyway, that year he didn't team with, with, uh, with Jesse. Uh, 
and then after that, Bobby, who you know had done you know great uh, performances uh, as a manager, they made that transition. So they that's when they really started to team up. Uh, you, you saw some of the the, uh, the these announced teams, and in your mind, like from listening, and, and what did you think at that time? Like what did what uh, was the best? How do you put wrestlers over in the ring uh, that you consider like announced teams had to put together? Well, the, those two guys, they, they had a plus because they were both friends, too. You know, I, that's always a... I don't, I, 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 you look, I don't think they really knew each other that when they first started working together that well, though. I think no, but I think really that friendship came. grew as the, the, yeah, yeah. As, as, as they were together. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and plus, they were both good. It was like uh, Abbott and Costello. Singles, yeah. they, were, they were good, but together they were magic. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Bob, Bobby, uh, to this day, I, I think, is one of the all-time... You know, there is it's being objective. Who's the best ever? I mean, it's not like a, a shot put record or a, a, a mild time. So you can say this guy ran the best ever. You know, everybody's got an opinion, and there's a lot of very, very good ones out there, man. And uh, you know, I thought that you're. I think you're right. That was a, a great team. But I think you knew more. You had more interaction. I I knew. I didn't know uh, Gorilla as Gino. I knew him as Gorilla. I think you had much more interaction with those guys than I did. Yeah, well, and especially with with Gino, because you know Bobby was on the road uh, with the boys for. Uh, I don't, you know, I look back, I don't know how he did it. I mean, that schedule that he had was just unbelievable. Well, you know, it was, doing... it was a lifestyle. It really wasn't a yeah. job. I mean, it really was a lifestyle, not just for Bobby, but for all the boys. I mean, it, your your life uh, revolved around it, and uh, you know, so I, I enjoyed it. I I thought it was you know it was a fun way to live, and of course, it, it was hard work and a lot of travel, but you know, I tell yeah. folks it's not like working in a salt mine. <laughs> no, I mean, you were making good money. I mean, and that, and that's the way you had right. to do well, it. Because, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah. you know, baseball, football player money, but it's definitely as Bobby Eden say with more than pushing a refrigerator around Sears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sears. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. but I, I really, the schedule he must have kept and I would love to see like his, his, his travel schedule because not only would he do all these shots on the road, he would be, you know, be managing three yeah, different teams or whatever, but then he would come to Stanford because we shot, uh, you know, um, wrestling challenge. And I don't and think there, a lot of people really man. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah. I'm sorry. There was another guy that's successful. You know, he's been with his wife forever, saved his money, yeah. you know, you don't party, but never got caught up in a lifestyle where he had to go to rehab for anything. I mean, he, uh, you know, another success story, you know, God bless the, the, the cancer deal, but you know, I, I'm a cancer survivor too. Uh, Dr. Death had cancer. A lot of us, uh, had the big C. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tough, it, it, uh, you know, a business and, you know, they can break down why many don't live to be, you know, past 60 much, unless they really took care of themselves along the way. But a lot of people who said about Bobby, it was always business first. And then if you, if he knew you could do business, then a friendship could come out of that. It didn't work the other way around. And that told, told you what a true professional. Well, he's he from really that is. close group. That was back from, you know, even WWF was still pretty close. I mean, they, like we talked to you on the other shows, the internet opened up so much it pulled the curtain back on wrestling. Totally. Yeah, you know now every state has you know half a dozen wrestling organizations, 
you know, that are smart to the business. And, you know, some, I, I do those, I've, I've done a couple of gatherings with the insane clown posse. My gosh, it was like uh, being at a butcher shop backstage. Everybody's getting juice on the head, on the arms. I mean, uh, it's a, yeah, it, I think the internet helped a lot of businesses, but kind of hurt ours. Yeah. But uh, I remember those days when they would come in and, and uh, you know, Gorilla would drive up, you know, he lived just outside of Philadelphia, uh, even though he was uh, technically New Jersey, but he was, you know, in Philadelphia and he used to drive this big giant Cadillac. He always had these big giant Cadillacs and it was it's like a ship. Ride, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it fit him. Yeah. They, it, yeah. They, it fit him well. But he would drive yeah. up, and uh, this this car he was always in like a big black, dark, you know, blue giant Cadillac, and he had this uh, masthead. He had the, the, the hood ornament. It was the you know the the silver lady that he had on this thing. It, was, it looked like a ship. It really was. And he would drive up Philadelphia, and uh, besides going on the, at all the TVs, but they would come up, you know, and do wrestling challenges. I don't think a lot of people realize too when they used to shoot those um, stand-ups for wrestling challenge because they would do the matches, of course. Uh, but they would do the stand-ups before, you know, the, the opening of the shows and the closing of the shows on the green screen in the studio in Stamford. And we'd, what would they do? They would shoot the big, giant, wide uh, crowd scene, you know, the, from the, when they were at the TV tapings. And then they would use that. And that was all a background tape of those guys doing it. And they'd be looking around, you know, and, it, like, and you couldn't tell the difference. It, it looked like they were right there. But they would come up and do, you know, the wrestling challenge and then also primetime. And uh, first of all, the, their, their, their play-by-play was really incredible to me. Uh, and for the reason that they fit together as a team so well, and I don't think, you know, if you break it down as a science, that would probably be pretty difficult. They, they just worked for whatever reason it was. But Bobby talked about it in his book about uh, why he thought that worked so well and, and, the, and the fact that here he is, you know, Bobby was all bluster. You know, he would talk and say things that, you know, you wouldn't you'd get punched in the nose most of the time. But if he was paired with another announcer who wasn't more intimidating, you know, and being able, it, it probably wouldn't have worked as, worked as well. But he would say this outrageous stuff and, and you know, Gorilla would say, well, you stop. And you knew that if it came down to it, he could squash him in a second. And, and many times he'd push, you know, Bobby would push it to the limit and he'd be like, all right, that's enough. And, you know, and then, and then Bobby would do his, uh, you know, uh, completely, you know, turn into a weasel and back down. But, uh, you know, it wasn't so much the match. The, the whole match was a show with them too. You know what I mean? There was this entertainment yeah. angle to it, not even just because of the match, but because of the way they worked together. I had the honor of working with Bobby and Gorilla. And like I said, to me, hands down, the greatest announced team ever in the history of professional wrestling. Uh, you just heard a clip of us talking about that team. Uh, Bobby and Gorilla were just amazing. Unfortunately, we lost Bobby this past year and Gino uh, Gorilla in 1999. And both are going to be forever missed. Uh, now, this next segment, folks, is from a podcast I really enjoyed. It's from the episode on Legends House. Remember that one? Uh, the WWE Network reality show where Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Gene Okerlund, Hillbilly Jim, Howard Finkel, Jimmy Hart, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Pat Patterson, and Tony Atlas all lived together in a house in Palm Springs for six weeks. Now, preparing for this show, I binged on every episode. <laughs> I really did. And uh, a few of the shows I was like, man, after I was you know in a few, I was thinking, 
they should call this reality show Cranky House because it seemed like it was just a bunch of old guys who were really cranky. But then I have to tell you, it started to grow on me as you could see these relationships develop. And we start this clip with Jim talking about those early episodes, and then we cut to uh, how it all ended up. And, you know, I have to tell you, I really thought the show was really well done, and I especially like near the end when they were wrapping up their time together. Uh, Here's a part of that podcast. Let's get to Legend's House. Let's talk about who the players are in this. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, if you remember back, uh, this was actually shot, I think, in 2012, wasn't it, Jim, when they actually did the shooting? It took I a while to get was. the it took a, They sat in the can for a while, and they, yeah. they spent a whole lot of money on it. You know, we were all worried that they weren't even going to air it, but it finally came out with the network. Yeah, and that's what it, uh, one of the reasons they were uh, waiting on it, too. Is they uh, Back that they didn't really know. They kept talking about the network, the network, and when, but there was no real launch date. And they were producing all of this content as they uh, you know, hammered out uh, the logistics and how they were going to do the network. And this was one of those uh, series that they put together, Legends House. Um, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Hillbilly Jim... Pat Patterson, uh, the great booker from the WWF, WWE, mean Gene Okerlund, a former broadcast colleague, Jim, Tony Atlas, who uh, I just saw you flinch uh, through the, uh, (laughs) I could just feel your, uh, Howard Finkel, the famed ring announcer, and the mouth of the South, Jimmy. Now we're going to, we'll do a quick rundown of all of those people. And then, of course, Ashley Roberts was the uh, femme fatale in this, who was the uh, co-host or the host of this show. But She was um, a singer, right? She was a singer oh, for yeah. somebody. It's really interesting. Really interesting. We'll talk about her. But I wanted to, to mention some of the other names that came close to being a part of this. Uh, Dusty Rhodes. The Iron Sheik, which would have been great as your roommate, I'm sure. It would have been <laughs> you're really, you're asking for it, Moody. <laughs> Bang, zoom to the that moon. That was a shot. Uh, Jimmy Snuka. Jimmy Snuka was also Sergeant Slaughter and the Honky Tonk Man. Now, people have uh, sent me questions about this. You know, how did it, they just, how did they get to this lineup of people who actually went to the house? I think you were the only ones who agreed to do it because <laughs> I spoke to some of my friends who were there during that time, and they it was really tough to get people to commit to this. Because Jim, uh, t- tell us how you first heard about this how they contacted you what did they tell you it was going to be well they've been sniffing around about that for over a year you know it's been in the works at the end they had talked to dibiase he you know and everybody a lot of guys didn't want to do it but also a lot of the guys wanted to be part of it it was a big opportunity and uh actually i was on the road uh, doing some indie shows and uh, johnny ace uh, called uh, excuse me mr laronitis called me and uh you know, again, said that they asked me to do this uh, legend house, and it's like five weeks out in California, which is a com- commitment. You know, with the, my wife yeah. and my daughters were in school and stuff, and uh, so I, I slept on it. And I called them the next day and said, "Yeah, are you kidding? Yeah, I want to be part of it." Right. But you did have to think about it, folks. Said this, and what it was first, actually yeah. the shooting was more than five weeks, though, wasn't it, Jim? I believe, yeah, just over five Eight? weeks, I think, the was whole it? time. Well, they probably get yeah, with some, you know, that was a consistent five weeks out there in California. Wow. Uh, we were out at, uh, it was supposedly Harpo Marx's mansion 
from back in the day in Palm Springs, California. God, it was a gorgeous, gorgeous place. And, uh, you know, if you had to be stuck somewhere for five weeks, Palm Springs, not a bad place to be stuck. No, not in that house. And if you've uh, seen the the show on the network, yeah, it was a beautiful house. And I loved all of the drone shots of, uh, you know, to see the grounds because it really was quite uh, quite a a house. And uh, yeah, and the uh, tennis court and everything else. So they called and they said, you know, you want to finally said, yeah, they said, well, fly out to California and, you know, on the way, like you have to have a roommate and like a roommate. I haven't had a roommate since college. You got to be kidding (laughs) a roommate. Who the hell am I going to room with? And I'm like, well, I know uh, Jimmy Hart pretty well. I can get along with Jimmy. I know Hillbilly, Hillbilly a little bit. And like when I get there, like in there, you're rooming with Piper. (laughs) What? And I didn't really know Pipe back then, you know, we just, uh, we've been in the same dressing room, but he hung with Orton and different guys. And I was running with Jake and, and my crew. So we'd just say hello to each other. We weren't really friends or you just, were just colleagues. You were just colleagues. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and so for the, when we get to, uh, uh, legend house, you get there the first two days, Piper and I are just eyeballing each other. How you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing? <laughs> you know, and then of course the relationship developed to where the fans called it the bromance, uh, where Pipe and I, we became uh, best friends over those five weeks. Our families became friends. Uh, our wives, our daughters still stay in touch. Uh, it was a, a, a unique, uh, it was like a lot of guys didn't like, it was like summer camp for me and Piper. Everybody else would be in bed sleeping, me and Pipe be in our bed telling stories and jokes and laughing. <laughs> <With> flashlights. <laughs> it was <laughs> like summer comes. camp, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that that was a huge commitment, though. You imagine, uh, you know, being in a house with uh, all these guys for five weeks. Oh, and they took your cell phone, uh, no newspapers, no TV. Uh, you could call home, but, uh, the G- mean gene, the head of recording, he'd come on. Hi, I'm mean gene with legend house. This tape is, this phone call is being recorded for legend house. So, you know, you had to have a, a code. I'd call my wife and be, I like to do number nine, four and three to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> The, the six and the nine and the, yeah, yeah hey hey watch it mooney just adding numbers that's all yeah uh okay so i, I want to get into that bromance a lot more because i the one episode i was love i love is when roddy went to do an appearance and you were just a lost puppy uh, sh- if you're in the roddy. house with the rest of those guys how would you feel holy smokes pat yeah. and mean gene uh, and uh and Howard are sitting around the table going, hey, remember that match in 85 and this happened and that happened? I'm like, oh, my God, who can remember 85? You know? I mean, they would just talk wrestling all the time. And, of course, Tony's in the gym. I'm building my muscles. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Hillbilly, Hillbilly really impressed me. He was like a renaissance man. He could sing. He play music. He write music. He cook. I mean, he'd meditate, do yoga. I mean, he was a, he was like the, and I said, if Tony Atlas could, I understand Tony having trouble with me and, uh, me and Piper, we're a pain in the ass too, you know, Yeah. but how in the world do you have trouble with hillbilly Jim? The guy's like a Buddhist monk, you know? Yeah. And he really, what a nice guy. I mean, I re- I worked with him on many occasions, nice man. a lot of and appearances. A big, big man. Yeah. He's a big yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, uh, let's run through the players, though, pretty quickly here so that everybody knows who we're talking about, who was involved. You mentioned uh, Ashley Roberts was a singer. Well, did you know that she was in the group, uh, the Pussycat Dolls, from 2003 and 2010? She was a major uh, uh, member of that band. And uh, when I saw that, I'm like, wow, uh, that's that's pretty impressive. 
Do you know that that group sold 54 million records, Jim? I did not know that, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> That's just amazing. And well, she know, left. At, at first, yeah. I thought she was going to be kind of a pain in the butt. You know, she'd come in every morning. Of course, she was a oh. beautiful young lady. Yeah. And But after a couple of weeks, I, I got the feel for her. Imagine being a young girl all dressed up, coming into a morning into a bunch of a house with eight guys all sitting around, you know, and mean jeans like, hey, yeah, I was gonna say, you. <laughs> everybody's hitting on her, flirting with her, joking with her. I mean, uh, she was a good sport. Yeah. And you mentioned it like Jean is like the wolf and, you know, like, <laughs> hello, hello there. How are you? Yes, Gene <laughs> yeah. Oakland, he's got that voice, you know. Yeah. Doing that with the mustache, you know, little, little. <laughs> snidely whiplash. Yeah. <laughs> she was pretty brave. But uh, you could see when you guys, when she walked into the room, it was like, oh, no, what's she going to make us do now? Yeah. <laughs> She was the one who brought the news on what the next adventure was going to be for you guys. Yeah, and and so. it was, and you know, as we were talking before we got on the air, Sean, you know, a lot of the best stuff they didn't put on uh, on the show. I mean, there was, you know, we were there for five weeks. Everybody had your own camera crew. You had your cameraman, your assistant cameraman, and your director. So you had three guys following you around, and they're like, "Don't talk to them." Like, you know, me, I'm like, how are you guys doing? They're like, good. I'm like, hey, you're not supposed to talk to me. You know? They're not here. I'm just too friendly just to visit with them. But uh, well, so they got they got hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape. They had, uh, you know, uh, hidden cameras. They had security cameras. They, so there's there's some great stuff of me and Piper. We think we're sneaking out back hiding to do something. I'm sure they got that on camera. <laughs> Do something. It's what like sneaking out of Stalag 13, the great <laughs> escape, me and Piper up against the wall, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> running well, from one bush to the other. Yeah, and I, I, I'm hoping you'll have a few of those tales for us. But since you mentioned it, give us some idea of what the production was like, because you're right. I mean, people really don't understand that, that they're, they, you know, uh, there's these moments that they try and capture, but not every moment is that entertaining. So they have to go through hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape. And what was that like? I mean, you had cameras around you, and you said you had your own camera crew that was with you. They were the hacksaw crew. Well, they had like, uh, you know, four or five crews out for the eight guys, and uh, but they ended up sticking with me and Pipe a lot because we were always into some kind of mischief or something, you know. But uh, so, yeah, you had your own crew with you, and then they had, uh, you know, cameras in uh, in the bedrooms throughout the house, and they said they had some uh, hidden cameras. So I'm really sure they got some good stuff. But, you know, and, and, the, and they had studio lights through all the house. And at, at 7 o'clock in the morning, boom, the oh, studio lights wow. would come on, you know, and the camera crews would come in. The first week, me and Piper were getting up. After that, we'd get the eye goggles and the earplugs. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you guys. We're sleeping in, you know. Yeah. This is real life. <laughs> yeah. I told him, I said, you know, 10 years earlier, that might have been a great group to have together. Yeah. Nowadays, it's 9 o'clock. Good night, everybody. Uh-huh. All, all those old timers going to bed, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that can get, I get, that's some getting used to. After a point, do you get used to them just being there you know, that you don't yeah, you notice really them? Do. You've heard you that really, before. Yeah, you really do get uh, really used to them. And, and after you leave it, it takes a little while to, not have somebody following you around, you know. <laughs> hey, fellas. <laughs> yeah. Honey, you know, were you just following me around with my... Following uh, me around with a camera. Like, camera but no, nobody really stuff. gives a darn about what I'm saying. What the hell, right? <laughs> you know, and... Uh, but it, it was it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. A lot of guys, I think uh, Pat and Gene said they wouldn't do it again. Yeah, me and Pipe, were, we were in for a second season, but 
I think they're talking about doing it with a, a different group of guys, like the DX guys now or something. And you just said, and maybe this was part of it because it is, that's what this reality TV does. That's what these producers do. They want the, the but I'll tell you what, though, it was uh, wonderful to see, though, to see these grown men who come from what everybody, you know, this tough, tough environment. And you can say whatever you want, how would they do things in the ring, whatever, but it is a tough world. You don't, you got to be one tough son of a bitch to do it. Uh, that they show that human side, you know, and I know, you you know, you talk about the, the car accident that you were involved in, lost someone very close to you. That was not easy for you. And you, it, it, and, and Jimmy talking again about losing his daughter and, uh, you know, and Jean, uh, his wife gave him one of her kidneys and it was together. You know, I just thought it was, it was, yeah, a, that's what, awesome that's what that's what, uh, if yeah. you look at uh, the, the, the subject matter of that conversation of that dinner conversation, I think yeah. Pat's deal was down the line. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think it was that, uh, groundbreaking when Jimmy's sharing his stuff. I mean, uh, my, my stuff, uh, it's life and death. I mean, it's, it's different, but, uh, yeah. it, uh, it is what it is. And Pat, uh, you know, came out and it was good for him. Yeah. Um, and the way they wrapped this whole thing up and I, I think they kind of went down the line. Remember they have like all the limousines when everything's all said and done. Cause you have this great dinner <laughs> and Pat sings, I did it my way. And right. it was, it was, uh, you know, and you guys performed the song that, that hacksaw, I mean that, uh, hillbilly Jake. and, and Jimmy wrote and that it was great. But the, you know, the final scenes when everybody's leaving and they come one at a time and their limousines, their limousines <laughs> pick them up. I'm sure that it, it, you know, the last two were you and yeah, Rob, pipe and they, that was, they planned it that way. Uh, but I think of, of seeing the unions that were made in that house, the strongest two, uh, were, or the strongest, you know, uh, connection was you and Roddy. And I know yeah. that well, going uh, in, neither one of you thought that was going to be the case. No, I don't think anybody in the show thought it was the case. I mean, I don't think, you know, that's why the fans called it the bromance. And, you know, at the beginning of the show, I don't think, that, I thought there might, they, I think they thought there'd be a little more conflict between me and Pipe instead of us becoming yeah. brothers, you know. And uh, like, there's no other the other group in that in that house that uh, formed that type of relationship. I mean, after that, we, we stayed in touch. Uh, we'd talk weekly, you know, we'd text back and forth. Uh, he got me that role in the blockbuster movie Pro Wrestlers versus Zombies. I mean, we, <laughs> that they're we had, he still was talking a, about. Yeah, he was a, a a good friend, and I broke my heart when he when he passed. Yeah, touching words there from uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He really uh, developed quite a relationship with with Roddy, and it's amazing that that whole time that they were in wrestling, they never got that close. It happened at Legends House, and. I, I was really surprised, though, that Jim said that he would do it again. You know, it was, it was just uh, incredible. But uh, you know, I have to say again how sad it was that their time together after becoming so close was so brief with Roddy passing away in 2015. Okay, our, our next installment here is all about an incident that, uh, we, you know, we just kept waiting and waiting to talk about. Uh, one that had a major impact on Jim Duggan's career and life. You guessed it. The infamous traffic stop in New Jersey with the Iron Sheik. And I'll let Hacksaw take it from here. What happened, we flew into Newark Airport. The show we were going to make was Asbury Park. And I'm standing there uh, waiting for my bag. And the Sheik, he come up and he says, uh, you know, Sheik, everybody does a bad imitation. Duggan, maybe I ride with you. I have no credit card. I can't get to rent a car. Maybe I ride with you. And, you know, I'd being young and dumb and, you know, I'm like, yeah, Sheik, I'm going to jump in with me. 
And uh, so the Sheik, you know, he jumps in. Like I said, this is not long after WrestleMania three. He jumps in with me, and we're on our way to Asbury Park. Beautiful, nice afternoon in New Jersey. And the Sheik says, uh, maybe we stop and get uh, some beer, maybe some St. Pauli girl beer. <laughs> I'll never drink a St. Pauli girl never. beer again, ever. But anyway, so we pull over and we get the beer skis and uh, we get back on the highway. We're heading down the road. And I'm like, well, Sheik, you know, I got a little weed. You want to smoke a, a doobie? He's like, yeah, sure. So boom, we, we burned a, a, a joint. I had like four or five under my seat, my front seat. And I'm driving down the road and I'm sipping on the beer and at the time, I'm, I live in Louisiana, that, you know, it was back in the 80s, early 80s, have drive-through daiquiri huts, you know. Right. Daiquiri huts. I'm driving through, you know, not thinking of nothing. Boom, I see the, the uh, Jersey State Trooper. He's on my tail. Now, okay, yep. but before we get to the stop here, I want, I, I, want, I want to back it up a little bit because uh, in Brooklyn, where, didn't you guys have an event the 24th? Uh, a couple of days before that in Brooklyn. Uh, and I think at the time you, you were teamed up with Patera, Ken Patera, in a tag team match. And then you guys were going against Nikolai and, and the Iron Sheik and, and Nikolai Volkov. And, and was that, wasn't that the same bit you guys were doing for Asbury Park? Right, the same. Uh, Pretty much, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That back then you'd do the same. You know, you'd hook up with somebody and you'd work the same shows. So, oh. and you pretty much would have the same match. I mean, you know, back then they weren't worried about the internet. Nowadays, you're like, oh, you got to change your match up. It's different. Uh, folks on the internet will be yeah, smart right. to what you did. Right. Which you know, I always disagreed with. You know, my run with the WWE. They're like, Doug, you did that. Of course, I'm really limited what I can do anyway. But they're like, you did that the other night. You got to change it up a little bit. I'm like, well. This, why change? If you got a great match and it's going real smooth, why change it up for the small percentage of people that are the smart marks that are like, oh, I saw it, and plus that makes them even smarter. They're like, oh, I saw that match before. I mean, right. you know, uh, but that's why I don't work in Stanford. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. That's why you're not the booker. Yeah. No, right. but but uh, I'm just trying to get the timeline straight here because it, it, unless these dates are not correct, but it said May 24th, 1987, you guys. Uh, had this match in Brooklyn. And then, uh, I don't know if you were somewhere else the next day, but then the 26th is when you were heading to Asbury park. So had you flown in? Seems uh, like to... I, I remember being in Newark airport. That's where I, I definitely got that. Now where I was coming from or what happened, uh, yeah. the day before or the, the days after or kind of a blur. A blur. <laughs> that's, that's, there were many yeah. of those days. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. That. <laughs> but, uh, but wasn't it, it was in the afternoon that you guys were heading to the show. Yes, right? yes, like, right. It was uh, yeah, still early. Go ahead, you know, up in the northeast up there, if you have a, you know, a 50-mile drive, you want to leave four right. hours early anyway, you know, because traffic is so brutal. It's always better to get to the town and get a bite to eat in the town and kill some, some time close to the building instead of trying to, to uh, you know, rush in and get there right before the show. But um, So when you hooked up with, with uh, Shiki that day as uh, – I guess it was his nickname that the boys called him. Uh, did you get, was there any thought in your head? Because I don't know how strong that edict was that you guys, uh, baby faces and heels weren't supposed to mix. Was that just, that wasn't uh, that strong kind of written knowledge that you were supposed, not supposed to hang or what was it? What was it then? Yeah, it was kind of uh, yeah, it was a no, no not like a mid south where it was a, you know, a finable offense, but it was, it was frowned upon in the WWF. That's for sure. 
So you didn't really give it a second thought. I mean, you, uh, as far as well, well, you know, plus I, I was a relatively new guy. Iron Sheik's the Iron Sheik, you know, uh, driving to Asbury Park's not really that far from Newark, you know. So I'm like, yeah, what the hell? I'll give you a ride. Yeah. So it was just kind of one of those, hey, what the heck? It's a short ride. It's not going to be a big deal. Right. No, and, you know, and the <laughs> who would know? <laughs> yeah. The world. Yeah, who, would ever, who would ever find out? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's your story. When we get back to it, I'll, I'll tell you after the uh, after the the pullover. Okay. So uh, you guys don't have that far of a ride. Where did you? Where were you coming from? Were you remember you left from? We came from the airport. We stopped and got. Oh, the really? Beer. Okay. Yeah, we, we stopped and got the beer. We smoked a doobie. We're we're driving down the uh, the road and. All of a sudden, they they let me up from behind. I saw the uh, state trooper coming up behind me. And like, what were you doing? Like 150 miles an hour? I mean, was it? Well, you... not not until I saw him. And then I floored it. <laughs> we went through two toll nice booths. Speed chase, you know, yeah. uh, you know, they put down the the uh, stop spikes, but I got by him. And yeah, right, right. Yeah, are you kidding? I'm Seven I'm a guys. yes sir officer, no sir officer. Oh. You know that's why so many people have trouble with police when they tell you to put your hands up and quit resisting. Put your hands up and quit resisting. I mean, it's not, you know, especially a big guy, long hair and a beard back in the day. But no way. I, I saw the lights and sirens and yeah, I pulled right over. Yeah. And so did the sheik give you any idea that maybe he might have something that uh, could no, get not, you? No, not no. really. No, no, not really. And uh, I, I, I was, you know, have him get the window open quick as possible. Try to air it out a little bit, you know. But uh, yeah, the so you troop- weren't tossing doobies out the window, or no, no, I didn't have that much to throw away. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, of course, in the uh, New Jersey State Police, I mean, they're intimidating looking. You know, with the Sam oh, Brown yeah. belts oh, and yeah. the boots yeah. and that big hats. I mean, and boom, he's got the car all lit up, and he walks up to the car. I'm sitting there with a beer in my lap, you know, and I look up at him. Yes, sir, officer, and he goes, "You're drinking while driving." I said, yes, sir, but I'm not drunk. He goes, it's illegal in New Jersey to drink while you're driving. I'm like, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> I, I did not know I'm uh, from. That's Louisa. like a backwards hoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I, that was a good one, Moody. That's uh, the best uh, one of the all these weeks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was a shot. I've been Holy slacking. <laughs> I'm hurting now after that shot. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was not definitely no, no, no hoe. And it was a, oh, no. <laughs> and uh and so he's like, uh, uh, as he's questioning me, and he goes, uh, is there anything else in the car you want to tell me about? And, of course, you know, my dad is chief of police. I spent a lot of time with police officers. I'm, I'm friends with cops, uh, you know, and I know honesty is the best policy. They're going to find it anyway. So I'm like, uh, yes, you sir, didn't officer. You did say a stripper and a, and a midget in the trunk? You didn't say? <laughs> no, like, no. That wasn't that. That was the uh, bachelor party. That's yeah. another story. <laughs> but then, but anyway, uh, so he's, I'm like, uh, yes, sir, officer. I said, there's a small amount of marijuana under my seat. He says, get out of the car, feet back and spread them. <laughs> I'm like, oh. that went over well. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, now I'm trying it. You know, USA, yeah. you watch wrestling, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, he was totally all business. And of yeah. course, you know, he's got me up against the car. Now backup is arriving. And, of course, me and Sheik are good-sized guys, so I don't know if he called for a lot of back backup or they just realized that, you know, we were wrestlers. But, boy, there seemed to be an awful lot of PD there. Right. And, of course, they pulled the Sheik out of the car. Now they got me and the Sheik up against the uh, the, the, the state police cars with their f- feet back and their hands up on the car. And they're 
people are going by and going like, isn't that the Iron Sheep with Hackstaw Duggan? <laughs> <laughs> look, look, look. They got a match tonight. <laughs> yeah, you know, and of course now, boom, they're searching everything, you know. And Do you um, think at, the, at what point did they know who you were? Did they make uh, any any recognition or say anything to you guys? Not really, no. They were talking amongst themselves, you know, and, yeah. and yeah, we knew they knew, you know, who we were. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of times it, it goes away that helps you people know who you are. And, of course, yeah. and it goes the other way other times where people go out of their way to show that they don't care who you are. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't was care that are. one of these times? <laughs> well, no, they were they were very professional. No, right. you know, we, you know, uh, people were like, oh, they pulled you. Well, you know, I was drinking while driving. I, I broke, you know, I was breaking a law. I didn't realize it. And, uh, you know, and the, the pot, you know, I figured back in Louisiana, I got called a couple of times with pot. The cops would say, hey, come on, hacksaw, knock that stuff off, you know, right. <laughs> take the weed, no big deal. And, uh, of course now they, they, they're searching the sheik and they opened up, you know, he had his, uh, man purse he used to carry and, uh, boom, as soon as they opened up that, that they popped and they, they hooked us up and put us in separate police cars and, and took us to the uh, state police station. When did you know that, did you see them pull the cocaine out of his bag? And then you oh, went, but I oh, knew, great. Yeah, yeah, you know, I yeah, mean, there was no question what was going down. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, I knew, yeah. The way they reacted when they opened up the sheet and everybody went over and looked at it and, all, and then they all look at him, look back in the purse. They look at him. <laughs> it's like, you know, and so then we drive to the, the police station or the uh, troopers barracks, I guess it is. And, uh, uh, you know, I have a, a ticket for drinking while driving, you know, not drunk, never was arrested for drunk driving and, uh, for less than a half ounce of marijuana. Like I said, I had four or five doobies, you know, the sheik on the other hand, he had felony cocaine, three grams of cocaine in separate containers. And I tell you what was, was maddening. Cause I was doing drugs back then too. You know, she wasn't alone, but I never carried around with me. You know, that I wasn't like that. I had tried it a few times and more than a few, I guess. But, uh, so, but when they get us in there, now they bring in our bags and they go through every possible, cause you got to keep a receipt for every road, you know, every day you're on the road for every hotel, every meal. So they they have the, this big uh, blotter there over this, and they're shaking every receipt over, waiting to see if something's going to fall out of the receipts. I mm-hmm. mean, they check they check everything in your bag. I mean, your aspirin bottles. I mean, they were looking for everything. You know, they found they found the Polaroids of the wife. You know, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're going it's through they're like, the wife. Yeah, <laughs> they're going like oh, Deborah. <laughs> like, hey, how do you know her name? What? The hey. <laughs> God. No. Jim, back then though, did they do the uh, side of the road, you know, uh, DWI testing back then? Did no, they, yeah, yeah, I don't and, think. And the breath, any... the breathalyzer, did you have to do that as no, well? I, I don't think there was ever any question that uh, they even thought I was drunk. I mean, I was, you know, like so I said, they didn't make you do that. It didn't draw blood. They didn't do, but uh, none of that at all. So it was. Uh... You know that, but the sheik now with three grams of cocaine, yeah. he had to go in front of a judge, and so boom, the sheik disappears and he goes off to the judge. And I, they got me. They kept me in a cell at the uh, at the, uh, the the trooper barracks. Finally, the sheik gets bonded out and everything gets back to me. Boom, they take us back to the car. They didn't tow the car. They left the car on the highway, which is unbelievable. But it was back in the eighties, I guess. But boom, yeah. they took us back to the car. We got in the car. And we made the show. <laughs> they took you back to the car. 
we, they took us back to our car. We got in our car and we drove to Asbury Park and we made the show. So from the time you were pulled over to the time they got you back to that car, what span of time are we talking? I think it was 2.30 in the afternoon or something yeah, like that. Yeah, probably four over. or five hours, you know. Wow. And boom, you know, that's one of the deals, you know, if you're going to be late, be, you know, so late that they're happy to see you. Yeah, and, and how uh, far away were you from Asbury well, Park? Well, in between, yeah, Newark and uh, Asbury. So I don't know. It wasn't wasn't that far of a distance. You know, and, I, and you I'm weren't sure. formally charged with that. What, what did they, you know, were you charged? What was the. Yeah, I, I got the uh, misdemeanor. Uh, I got a ticket. Uh, so I paid the ticket for drinking while driving. And then I had a misdemeanor for possession of less than uh, half an ounce of marijuana, which they expunged. If I didn't get arrested for six months for anything, they expunged it from my record. So, you know, now, legal, thing, legally, yeah. it was it was nothing. I mean, legally, it was, you know, I had nothing. Professionally, it was a huge decapitating Which, yeah. blow. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that as well. But I wanted you uh, to clear this up right now, too, Jim, is because, you, and I'm sure you've heard it in some of these, uh, you know, these wrestling chat rooms, that kind of thing, that that claim that somehow you got easier treatment because of your father's affiliation with law enforcement. <laughs> and really, I just I, I know that you've heard it, but I wanted for you to clear that up right now. I don't know how you get easier treatment with you know, less than half an ounce of marijuana. I mean, you know, I, I think that would happen to anybody. I, you know, it wasn't like I was, you know, so it wasn't a phone call to up. dad saying, no, uh, yeah, there yeah. was definitely a phone call to dad and I definitely got my ass chewed, but yeah, I don't think, uh, yeah, if, if anything, I think I probably got treated harsher. I think that much, they probably, most people would have just thrown out of court. Me that I had to do the six months without getting popped for anything, which was no problem. I mean, <laughs> You know, that's the deal. In the, all these years, I've, you know, never, no felony arrest. This is this misdemeanor that uh, that still follows me to this day. But, yeah, no, my papa, yeah. you know, he's a, he was a small-town police officer, police chief up in upstate New York. Uh, these are state uh, New Jersey state troopers. Yeah, he ain't going to have – and everything happened awful quick. I mean, it's not uh, – yeah, actually, I didn't tell my dad to the next day. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised it wasn't longer. I'm sure that was one call you didn't want to make. Yeah, well, that was the deal. You know, we made the show in Asbury Park. We wrestled yeah. each other in Asbury Park. I went over to the USA deal. We got in the car. Didn't tell a soul. Didn't tell Arnie Skolin, who was kind of my mentor back then. Uh, didn't tell any other wrestlers. Didn't tell anybody. Got back to the hotel. Of course, this is before cell phones and computers and right. stuff. But right? did but. you, Jim, did you really think that, it wasn't going to get out. I mean, it, is it, I mean, looking back, would you yeah, I guess think it would really have been better if you went right to move. those guys? Thanks, Mooney. Well, it was, uh, you know, also panicking, I guess. Yeah, it was yeah. definitely the, the, the wrong of first call should have been as soon as I got to the police station when they gave me the phone call should have been to my, uh, to not my pop, God bless him. But to Vince McMahon and tell him if they if anybody could have helped out, I think Vince could have helped out. But uh, I, I don't think any because you know my deal was nothing. It was the sheik with three grams of cocaine. I mean, it's a, a little different, you know, because yeah. they they could have uh, charged him with attempt to distribute because he had the three grams in three separate containers. Yeah, and uh, that is uh, that's a sizable amount of cocaine to. Uh, I mean, I don't imagine, I don't know. And I don't think he was distributing. I think that gave he was capable. Weight, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> See how cautious I was? Hey, no, but, but, but he, uh, from his 
uh, from what you know we understand today that he had quite a habit uh and that, a lot of guys did. And plus yeah. it was the 80s you know yeah. i mean uh, you're doing cocaine with movie stars and movie starlets i mean you know first time i did it was in paris france you know uh i mean shoot with a movie star i don't want to say nothing but i mean uh, it was uh, you know drugs were different culture back then especially in our business we were more like a rock and roll band and a lot of guys got up you know you look through the roster how many guys died because of uh heavy drugs you know not pot but i mean you know the coke and the downers and the pills and the opioids and the and you know that's what takes the toll the weed you know shoot back then yeah. bill bill clinton was smoking pot come on yeah. so yeah so uh, at the time and we don't we won't mention names but uh it was a lot of a lot of superstars were were imbibing in that a, kind of thing. The majority of guys were. Yeah, and it was just the, the times, and you, like you said, it, it was a different it was time. An incredible period of time. These guys were God, experiencing success. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, if I ever got those three days back, right? <laughs> but um, but really, it was a time that these guys experiencing this great fame, uh, more money than they'd ever made. I'm sure, uh, traveling the around business. the world, Paris, yeah. London, Rome. I mean, come on, Berlin, Tokyo. Well, and I told you too, that, you know, I co I've covered a lot of professional sports and I never saw the type of fans and I, uh, and I'll, and I'll say the female fans at these venues that, uh, that beautiful women and uh, a few others, but, but the, the, uh, the people that they would attract and, and, uh, it was pretty much, uh, you know, Easy oh, pickings. Man. And so it was you guys uh, like, uh, Sean and Marty and, uh, Ricky and uh, Robert, you just hope to get the overflow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, it was, uh, just a, a, incredible to me. It would be like three deep. These guys would have their choice. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, amazing. Imagine you had like poor flair <laughs> with a constitution. <laughs> yeah. Well, 10,000 women, apparently. And that's what he says. So that's, that was, uh, I, wow. I, I'd like to see the numbers, the breakdown on that, but that's what he claims. <laughs> but uh, getting back that, on the track, that was here. just one woman ten thousand times. So. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say how many. Uh, but uh, getting back on the tracks here, so you go and you make the show. <laughs> We're uh, off the tracks <laughs> just in time to uh, to make the, for that they're it. glad to see you. Yep, uh, you do the show. And, and, and afterwards, so did you just go to the hotel? Where did you, right where, to the what hotel, happened to the show? Went, went straight to the hotel. Of course, I'm still holding my breath, you know, I mean, and still, you're still, did you stay in hoping Edinburgh? against hope? Where did you go New back to, to Newark or where did you go after that? I can't remember right offhand. Uh, cause I think we had a, we had a shot the next day. Yeah. We had a shot the next day. Uh, but I called Deborah, called my wife, you know, and I'm like, honey, we got popped, but I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> so was this say, just the next day when did you no call? no this is at night that night after the show and i'm like you know good night i love you good night thank you. goodbye <laughs> boom oh, seven o'clock you know seven o'clock in the morning my phone's ringing <laughs> she's calling me she goes jim everybody knows uh -huh. <laughs> the office has been calling your family's been calling your friends have been calling your newspapers tvs everybody's calling so that was uh, a two by four across the forehead. Uh, yeah, well, I had it coming, man. I guess you know it was, it was a stupid, stupid move. Anyway, but uh, 
Yeah, so my, my first call was uh, to my dad, God bless him. He's chief of police, and he got ambushed. You know, he's sitting in the chief office. All of a sudden, the local TV and newspapers come charging, and boom. How about your kid getting popped on the Garden State Parkway with uh, Iron Sheik with cocaine and marijuana and all? My pop's like, what? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, drinking and driving, cocaine, marijuana, oh, boom, wow. boom, boom. So I called my dad and, uh, you know, my pop, and he goes, "Uh, Jim, he says, did you get arrested for cocaine? I said, "Uh, no, sir, I got arrested for marijuana. He jumped my head. I told you one of these days you get arrested for that shit. (laughs) And he chewed my butt pretty good. But then my family really rallied around me. I mean, my pop, my sisters, uh, Deborah, uh, we worked uh, married. Then uh, everybody rallied around me. Uh, and that, uh, that helped. But then my next call was to Vince McMahon <laughs> and uh, never in my life have I gotten through that quick to Vince McMahon. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet. So, uh, take us through that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, Jim Duggan for Vince McMahon. And like I said, usually they hope you're on hold listening music, you know, little music, it's like yeah. Jim Duggan, Vince McMahon, click, click Jim. Oh. And uh, Sean, I'll tell you, a, a good goosebumps thinking about right now. I remember ver- verbatim what he said to me. He's, he says, Jim, what have you done to us? Wow. And, uh, I'm like, yeah, no shit, huh? And I'm like, uh, Vince, uh, I'm embarrassed and ashamed. He said, turn in your airplane tickets and go home. And boom, slung the phone down. And uh, that was it, man. And I went home. And I went off the deep end. I mean, it, I would, I went crazy. Like I said, it was a monumental fall from ninety-three thousand people to be in the this can fired, just go away, get out of the company. Uh, uh, shoot, I went nuts. A little bunny rabbit ran through my backyard. I get the deer rifle. I went out, I'm chopping down trees in my yard in shorts and leather. You know, I got those dingo boots out <laughs> there dripping sweat. Neighbors are, what the hell is that crazy bastard doing? I'm out there She's chopped down 12 trees. Yeah, I, I, I just couldn't believe I was going crazy. I'm screaming uh-huh. and uh, just, I couldn't believe I, I shot myself in the foot. I destroyed my career that I've worked so hard for. And just screwed it up with one stupid, unbelievably stupid move with all of the people in the world to be with the Iron Sheik. I mean, that was the deal. A lot of folks are upset about the drugs, but the big deal was the kayfabe was broke that me and the Iron Sheik were together. All right, and that that has uh, been a, a debate with this. Um, do you think when it really came down to it, was it – the fact that you were with the Sheik and you guys were working together and you're a baby face and he's a heel, uh, or was it more, and maybe this is, maybe this is a separate conversation, one, how fans reacted to it and the other, how the WWF reacted to it, that to Vince, because this got major play across the country, made it made it in, uh, even made it into USA today. Uh, it made it into the New York daily news, um, and, international, and yeah, yeah, and you mentioned that back then we didn't have the same outlets that we have now. So that was that was big, big uh, coverage for something uh, like I'm, this. So I'm when you, you look back now, uh, first, how you felt that what you know how the fans received it, and we'll talk later how when you came back, how you you the reception you got. But at the time, how do you think that was 
taken by the fans that you yeah, let them I, down or what? Yeah, I think the fans really felt I let them down, and I did. I let them down. You know, I can't make uh, excuses. That was it, it's on me. You know, I always say the uh, the best excuse for or the best reason for Iran not to have nuclear weapons is to meet the Iron Sheik. But <laughs> you know, I was crazy enough to put myself in a situation with a guy like that, and that it, uh, it it caught up with me. And uh, like I said, you know, professionally. I think it would have killed off a lot of guys. I, I don't think a lot of guys would have recovered, and a lot of people didn't think I would recover. Jake, you know, he tried to, to smooge it over with Vince, you know, and uh, Vince had a big meeting. I believe it was in Buffalo uh, the day after the uh, the incident, and that the big thing, and Vince got up in front of everybody, and he pounded the podium. He said, this business is bigger than a six-pack and a blowjob, and Doug and Sheik will never work in WWF again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and uh, Jake called me up, and he's like, sorry, brother, you're screwed, man. Well, you know, uh, Axon may have been screwed at the time, but uh, things would change. And I know to this day, though, that Jim wonders where his career might have gone if that incident hadn't happened. But, hey, you know what? I think Hacksaw Jim Duggan has done all right, and he will continue to do all right. All right, moving on to the new version of Primetime. This is when we uh, made the switch uh, about 20 episodes in, and we decided we were going to invite guests on because this is when uh, Hacksaw uh, decided he didn't want to do the podcast anymore. And so I figured, okay, we'll, we'll start inviting guests on. And I have to be honest with you folks, I had no idea if we would be able to get anyone to come on. I had no idea how to contact a lot of these people. Uh, I, I still don't. Uh, some of these, uh, way I get in contact with everybody's uh, either somebody sends me a number or I, you know, I've had a chance to run into a few of these guys. But uh, it's really been fun. And uh, I plan for it to continue to be interesting every week here on Primetime as we get uh, some of the greatest personalities from the world of professional wrestling. On the podcast now, but going back then, I figured for my first guest, I would ask Bruce Pritchard. Now you know Bruce from something to wrestle with, a Bruce Pritchard. But Bruce was one of the first people I ever worked with when I arrived in the WWF, and he was there for my audition. You know, I've talked about the famed "Sell Me the Broom" audition, and uh, you know, so he he uh, said sure, and so we talked for over two hours. But I have to tell you, one of my favorite parts of that podcast is when we talked about living in Stanford and being part of really what was a very small production staff, uh, definitely compared to what it is today. And we all lived in what I like to refer to as Camelot in Connecticut. And here's part of that conversation with Bruce Pritchard. Talking about the the, the community there, and I I talk about the small staff, but it really was a small staff. And... uh, you know, the people that were there, and we all lived in this little community. And, you know, Howard lived there, uh, and he was the event center, besides the ring announcing, he was the one who, who kept, he was the keeper of the books. And remember, he'd go on TV, and he had those big, giant ledgers. You know, we didn't have laptops then, remember? And he'd have, he, oh, he loved it. He'd get, and he'd get on the floor cross-legged with his books, and he'd have the boys come in one at a time, you know, and then he'd say, okay, this is your, your thing. And he loved it. You know, he was... Uh, a lot of people don't know that that was a huge part of his job. He wasn't just the guy that was in the ring, but everybody Howard did love to hoard information. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, remember his, he has his gift of reading upside down too. Yes. Yes, he right? did. 
Yes, he did. And, and that's how he would uh, come across some of that information he got through the hole. <laughs> Right. Yes. Yes. Sean Mooney. Yeah, yes. definitely. And and Alfred was there, and uh, you know I wanted to do a podcast. I really do want to do a podcast on on Alfred because uh, Bruce, I you were around him as much as I were, and he was around the production facility every day. And uh, I, I he's I, why he isn't in the Hall of Fame is beyond me. But besides that, he was he was just a great person. I mean. I, you, I, I know you could share a thousand stories about oh. Alfred, but really, wasn't he was just uh, an incredible person? Yeah, no Alfred. Alfred was. Uh, Alfred and I ran around an awful lot there for many, many years, and I remember I would have to call him uh, every morning to make sure that he made it home after many of our ventures uh, <laughs> at Bugby and Brownell, uh, that little little bar that he used to go and goes. Yeah. I'll have a scotch and ginger ale, yes. little ice. And uh, he always wore the 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 coaches, the biking pants, like yeah. the, uh, the 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 pants that the coaches always wear, and you know, just to display his whale rope, so that every the young young lads, <laughs> young young uh, maidens, the young maidens, yes, that's could, right. Uh, see what they were going to be working with later. Yeah, and he would. Uh... I, I always used to love when he never swore, folks. You'd never hear, I, no. I never heard an expletive out of his mouth, but it's something he'd say, how unfortunate or <laughs> drat. That was one of his favorites, but uh, he really was. And he, he would call them uh, you know, young maidens or, or, or wenches if they were not pleasing to him. But yes. um, he also remember, remember when uh, he used to, he, he, he hooked up with these nannies. Do you remember the, the gaggle of nannies that he hung out with? Uh, yes, and, I do. And they were all of age. Let's get that out there. He, we, he liked them young, but they were all of age. And, yes. Al, and Alfred had, remember he had this gigantic uh, powder blue uh, continental. Oh, I thought you were, well, you were talking about it. Alfred had this gigantic, and I was going, yeah, uh-huh, and yes, definitely. <laughs> well, that's another story. I, don't, I didn't know it was powder Everybody blue. That. Everybody knows that. Yeah. <laughs> the legend of the Lord. Yes. Uh, yeah. But uh, remember, got a whale rope. But uh, oh. he he drove this that remember that Continental. It was this big giant powder blue, and I think it was Vince's at one time that and and when he stepped up to the uh, the Bentleys and the other cars that uh, um, that he had the car kit. What was that one? The uh, uh, wasn't an Excalibur. Uh, Clenet. No, it was, it was Clenet. Clenet. Yes, he loved the Clenets. Well, Alfred, it was sitting in the parking lot. He asked him if he could have it, and so he got it tuned up, and that's what he drove around. And he would show up to a gathering. And he had six or eight of these uh, these young maidens with him, and uh, he, he was like a, <laughs> an English. I, I, I guess not a pimp. I shouldn't say that, but it was it was funny. It was Alfred and his girls, and he would take these young ladies around, and they loved them. Uh, they did. They did because yeah. they they usually came from England, and they usually came yes. from overseas. And for whatever reason, in Stanford, the it's also he had the nannies and the au pairs because, for whatever reason, Stanford and Norwalk were a hotbed of yes. that's where they would train them. Yeah, and so, then they would of course be placed in the you know the the high end homes in in Greenwich, and Darien, you know those places. So yeah, and they all was. hung out together. Yeah. And so they, they always liked, you know, being attached to home and Alfred would make them feel more like they were at home. Yes. And he lived in this apartment that actually had a watchtower watch on it. Remember a big clock tower? It was, it was a big clock tower. It used to be a factory. Yes. 
So it was yeah. perfect for him. It was like Big Ben, and you could find it. But you mentioned how you used to have to call him to make sure he got home okay. And I remember I went over there one morning, and I still to this day don't know how he did it. But he had placed uh, one wheel on the curb. That was it. It just was like balancing. <laughs> and I said, how did you do that, Alfred? And he, and he didn't even remember parking it. And, and that was with the days when you, uh, you know, they'd, they'd pull you over and, and basically get you home. Yes. But uh, there was probably a number of evenings he probably shouldn't have been uh, out there driving. It was a different time, kids. Don't drink and drive. Don't drive drunk. But it was a different time that is said, yeah, if you got pulled over, they'd say, okay, where do you live? And they would get you home. Um, And Alfred, being a very kind, elderly gentleman, and when, you know, you talk about going in that place. I remember walking in to Alfred's apartments there and you would smell, you would always know if Alfred was cooking because you and this place was huge. Yes. It was a big place, but you could walk in and you could smell when he was cooking cabbage. Oh yeah. And the other thing he would do is he would keep curdled milk. Remember he loved the curdled milk Yeah, in the refrigerator. I mean, where you just, it would be, he would just keep it till it went bad and you could like, it was lumpy and he, that he drank that it was, he loved it. I don't he know did. how he did. Yeah, he would yeah. See, take out with the curdles with a spoon. Yes. Yes. He's disgusting old Brits. <laughs> but we loved, God, we loved him dearly. He was so always so much fun. And I got to have, you know, fun to, being able to actually work with him and made a couple of trips to uh, England with him. And uh, I know that you and you enjoyed him as much as I did. And uh, it was, a, you know, it was a small community, really. We were this family, uh, if, you know. Uh, I remember, you know, the Pat and Louie, uh, Pat's partner, had the gimmick house. And remember how many evenings Shake did we spent over there? Yeah. yeah. And he had this house. Well, can you explain what that house looked like? It was the gimmick house, but explain to people why it was called the gimmick house. Well, it had 142 windows in it. Yeah. Um, all Every single window was a different shape. Right. In Triangles. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was yeah. Circles, just oval. Everyone was a different size and a different shape. And it, it went on and on. It had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six bedrooms, I believe. And just nooks and. Uh, right. And blocks. no doors. Right. It was like you couldn't. There was no doors, yeah. really. You could. Yeah. You had no. Absolutely no privacy. It was a giant loft. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was insane, but it was. Uh, it was a great party house. Yeah, and uh, and a lot of fun. And you know, you talk about it being a family. We what people don't understand too is we worked. You know, twelve, right. fourteen hour days. Right. And then yeah. when we were off, or when we would finish up that twelve hour day, you would want to go out, but everybody wanted to go out, and you all went out together. Exactly. So yeah. we were always, and then when it's time to travel, we always traveled together. Yeah. So you're around these people all the time. And that's how, you know, um, <laughs> I used to get a lot of crap because I, I would date internally. Um, I'd be like, where the hell else am I going to yeah, meet well, Exactly. I did the same thing. I mean, <laughs> what else? Just, we, it was, it was a community. We had nowhere to go. We lived in, I tell you, it, it was Camelot. We lived in the kingdom. Yeah. When the hell else? Yeah. When, how, when do I get out to meet anybody? Everybody did get over it. Yes. Everybody did because that's just, so it was kind of incestuous. Yeah. yeah, That's that's one way to put it, but yeah, 
at, at the same time, not, you know, but it was, it was a little different. You just kind of had to go with it. And we always spent time together. And, and when it was time to go to the airport, everybody loaded up and went to the airports together. Then you flew together and then you got to the, to the town and you went to the bar together and then you worked together. <laughs> so they flew back together. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so. those those were we, there were a lot of fun. I mean, I mean, we'd have theme parties. I remember they had a toga party one time, and uh, one time they had a live band in in the, the living room of that place. It was always fun. And I, I, do you remember the ski trip? Like we all went on that ski trip. I don't even know where we went, but Vince we arranged it. Killington, Killington, Vermont. yeah. So uh, it was. I mean, it was and. It, and I, that's the reason I wanted to talk about that because you look at what the WWE has become. I mean, it is truly a corporation. There's, there's, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of people that work for that company around the world now. Back then, it wasn't that case. We knew everybody, and we knew everybody who worked over, you know, worked downtown before the tower. You know, we knew everybody that was working in promotions, and you know, yeah, that's that ain't the case now. I mean, that's how small a company it was, folks. That's how it really was. And you know, could you, like Howard, could you imagine? Could you imagine getting away with a tenth of the things that we got away with just oh, on the ski trip? Oh my God, no, no. no I, I'm singing. <laughs> yeah, the, took over the bar or the piano, and 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 uh, you know, you put Pat Patterson in front of a someone who can play an instrument, uh, and he's he's off. You know, you can't get him to stop singing. And right. uh, so, yeah, it, it it's just amazing when you look back at that. It was a really not only just a golden time in wrestling; it was a golden time in the WWF for anybody who had the privilege of working there because it was just insane. And we could tell all kinds of stories, but there's one I really want to go tell is it, it involves, you mentioned Larry Rosen and, uh, and, and the big guy, Andre, the giant. And remember the story of him? They, he went to the hotel and got Larry liked to have a good time and probably didn't handle himself the best in front of the giant. You know what story I'm talking about? I don't. Really? You're not going to enlighten okay. me. I'm going to have to enlighten you. So, you know, the, he stayed at the hotel. What at was the that? Hyatt. Uh, yeah, the Hyatt. Yeah. And uh, Kevin and all those guys went over there, and I think uh, Gene was there as well. And you remember, Larry liked to tip a few back in the day. Larry um, liked to drink, and, yeah. and he started, he got the, the, the giant a little ornery. And as the story goes, uh, with one very slight... Uh, uh, work of hand, uh, Larry went flying over a table, <laughs> knocked over everything. And then, and then, so that at that point, <clears throat> I think he, uh, that, that ended his evening, but he was another example. Like people thought that they could drink with Andre, not cannot be done. No. So, but no, uh, I, I, I've been the victim of, of at the end of the night, last call and Andre ordering, I want 32 more vodka. They're like, what? <laughs> and what's going to turn them down? Vodka. Yeah. Oh and exactly. And the, the guy would make up 32 uh, vodka sodas or vodka tonics. And Andre would expect you to, to sit there and drink them with him. Oh, my God. And I, you know, I always consider myself a decent drinker, but you just, I don't care who you are, how great of a drinker you think you are. Um, the boss didn't care. And it was also, and it was also considered rude to leave him if he were drinking. Right. But he, he didn't expect you to keep up. No, <laughs> but, but at the same, but Just he expected there. you to drink and with drink. him. Yes. 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 You don't have to drink as many as him, but if he's drinking, you're drinking. 
Yeah. Ooh, vodka. Ooh. Yeah. So it 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 kind of worked that way, but it it was it was all good times, man. Yeah, it sure was. And and, and I I could go on with all these personalities, but there's just well, since I I have you here, and uh, I was close to Freddie Blassie. Uh, you got any good Freddie stories? Because I've I've told a few about where we used to go to uh, golf tournaments, and he would he would uh, you know ride in the cart with me. He couldn't play, but he would write. You know where they like longest drive. He would write my name on these things. Unbeknownst, I wouldn't see him do it. I'd be searching for a golf ball or something. He would go over and we'd go in and they would announce the names for the winners of the longest drive and the closest to the hole. And he had put my name, so he would totally just embarrass me, and I'd have to give this stuff back. I'm like Freddie, but he was around a, a lot too, and uh, really, I learned so much from him as well. Freddie had no filter either. No, was- oh my god. Beauty yeah. of Fred Blassie, and he yeah. he could get heel. away. He thought with he was it. a heel forever. <laughs> he did, and and when Freddie, I guess it was the the Hall of, it was either the Hall of Fame or a Cauliflower Alley deal. But uh, if you could imagine in this day and age, uh, Freddie his his wife was Japanese, beautiful, yes. Miyako. beautiful, Miyako. yeah, yes. traditional, oh. very traditional Japanese woman. Yes, and and I mean just. She looked like a, a porcelain doll. She was absolutely gorgeous. She was yeah. beautiful and, and so sweet. And God, she loved her, Freddie. And so uh, it may have been the, the Hall of Fame. And Freddie gets up and he does this uh, touching thing about his wife. And at the and he pulls out a, a diamond ring or whatever to give to her. And he goes, all right, you little Jap, get up here and get your... <laughs> <laughs> it's like and and everybody she comes up and oh freddie and it's like oh my god and uh he he came over he would come over to the house and and it was all it was always so cool if i was having a party vince would always make sure that that freddie had a car that would go pick him and miyako right. up yeah and miyako would would like go around the house and she would like pick up and and my Very wife tradition. my wife is like you know she'd go Miyako Miyako it's okay we we've got this we've got this and she's like oh no 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 Freddie Freddie put his coffee over here and and I'm just cleaning up for him you know he he doesn't I was like we got this but she was just she was just so sweet and really? she, she loved cats and my wife had a cat um, I hate cats but uh, we, we had a dog and a cat and Miyako sat with this damn cat all night long and Freddie is is in the other room and, and it's like, you go, look at her in there with her, just petting her pussy. Look at her. Always <laughs> petting the pussy. Oh, petting the pussy. <laughs> it's like, it was just, that's Freddy. You know, Freddy that was <laughs> nobody, you know, like nobody reacts to it. No. It was like, Hey, yeah, there's Franco petting the pussy. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. It's, it's all good. We used to do, uh, Franco Harris used to do this, um, charity event every year. And I was lucky to be able to go because, you know, not a lot of the, uh, superstars lived in Stanford, and I was kind of with Freddie because I had, you know, they liked, I could handle them, I could do whatever, so they always had me go with them, and so we would go down for this awesome weekend, it was downtown at the, uh, you know, the, the hotel with the spinning restaurant on top, and um, we would do this, they had this really great event, you'd go and you'd play tennis with with celebrities, and then they had this big dinner, I think they had Dion Warwick was one of the you know performers, anyway, Great event. And he would go down there and it was really fun. And I remember that they had a car, they, they would, they, a limousine that would, took us, you know, picked us up in Stanford and, and took us home the next day. So the next morning we're out in front of this hotel and, you know, Freddie comes out and he's got the Hawaiian shirt on and the, you know, 
and he's got all the gold and the chains and he's got his, he had a, you know, the man purse. That's what Freddie carried. Right. So we're out there man waiting bag. for the guy. The guy's loading up the car. Yeah. Man bag and loading up the car. And, uh, we're out there in front waiting. And then all of a sudden you see Miyako's coming out and she's got like six bags, uh, uh, you know, all the luggage. She's got one under the arm. She's got, and she weighed what? Maybe, maybe 80 something pounds. <laughs> so yeah, she maybe. Was very small. And she's struggling with this. And he, and he, and I kind of go to help her and he goes, <clears throat> leave her. She's going to start expecting me to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was Freddie. I must God. And she's, you know, you just see her. She's like almost falling down, you know? And then, then finally the guy, you know, thank God, the guy that was the driver came over and started helping her. But you know, that was, that was it. Freddie's like, you know, she's traditional. That's what he loved. She, he slept in a, in a lazy boy chair. They had a big giant, one of those Japanese tubs in the house and she would bathe them every night because everybody, every part of his body was fused together. So she, she, and really you talk about, uh, I mean, that was, that was it. <laughs> and Freddie, Freddie had a, a really, really nice tanning bed in the house too. And it was oh, automatic. Yeah. So it would close when you hit the button, it would close down on you. And once you finished, it would open back up and then, and then allow you to get out and then it would close the electric. He's downstairs tanning and the electricity went out. <laughs> I never heard and, and he got stuck in the tanning bed and oh Miyako was out at the grocery store. And when she came home and he says, ah, damn it. Don't you know I'm down here? I'm stuck in the damn thing. I can't get out. And you're worried about the damn garage door, not going up. Come down here and get me out of this damn thing. <laughs> and, uh, God, I never heard just, that story. Oh, absolutely so classic. Yeah. Absolutely. I think he tanned until the day he died. I mean, he was always, he probably found a way to get in that thing because that was, that's the way he was. was absolutely. You know, he always used to carry around the, the little uh, moist towelettes yeah. to, to clean his hands and everything. Hey, I get these things. The one thing the damn Japanese do well, they got clean hands. But as you mentioned, you know, like he had, yeah, yeah, right. But he had no filter, and it was funny because remember every year they'd get him at, he'd get in a helicopter dressed up as Santa Claus, and they would take him down uh, to the Javits Center or something like that. And he would arrive, and you could imagine what he said to these kids. You know, he didn't know any better. Ah, you little Merry Christmas, you little. Get on my lap. <laughs> what do you want? Yeah, well, tough. If you so get a job one day, you might get it. Yeah, yeah, he know. was the original bad Santa, if, and, and not realizing he was a wonderful guy, but he just had no filter. You're right, and it just the stuff he used to say to people. I remember at those golf tournaments, you know, you'd have all these ladies that were working as volunteers. Oh my God, the stuff he would say to them, you know, you still working it, honey? You know, like, oh jeez. <laughs> but they loved him. Yeah, oh, I know. That's like you yeah. see, he could get away with it. Somebody else did it. No, you'd be arrested. Freddie, they loved him. It was just Freddie. Where it yeah. was. Freddie Blassie uh, definitely was a very interesting individual. I had some great times with him, as I did Alfred. And, um, you know, living in Camelot in Connecticut was an incredible part of my life. And I think you could tell by listening to Bruce as he remembers it. And I believe he remembers it as fondly as I do. Uh, next up, my chat with the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase. Now, in this podcast... Uh, we certainly talked a lot about his time in the WWF, but what I really enjoyed hearing about, and it holds true with, with a lot of my guests that I talked to, is learning about what led them to the business. And Ted's story about that road to the ring did not disappoint. One day I get a phone call from Terry Funk 
Yeah. And Terry says, he says, he said, Teddy, what are you doing right now? And he said, I said, well, nothing. And he says, you know, you have any, st- you're not going to miss it. You know, I can, you know, can you come with me to Lubbock, Texas tonight? And it's a hundred miles away, right? So he had, yeah. they wrestled every, well, I think Wednesday night or whatever it is, Friday night in Lubbock. And I said, sure, I can come. Why? He says, we, we need a referee. <laughs> All right. That's a start. And so, and so he brings a referee shirt for me. And I mean, it's like, you know, and like the first time I step back in, a, I step in a ring in front of a live crowd, I'm a referee. Yeah. And, and, and here's the thing. And I never even thought about it, Sean, until later. Hmm. I stepped back into a ring in the town and in the building where my father died. Wow. And it was almost like I, I had this picture, like, this is where my dad left off, huh. and here's where I'm picking it up. And uh, incredible. it's crazy. But hmm. uh, so I refereed. And then so that summer, instead of getting a regular job, I mean, I had roofed houses and been a lifeguard at a swimming pool and everything. So instead of doing that, I refereed. Hmm. I refereed wrestling all summer. Uh, for the Amarillo territory. And so I got a real, you know, I started learning the psychology of, 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 of the business. Were you training at the same time too? Well, yeah. I mean, I was training and staying in shape for football. Oh, so it wasn't. Yeah. And then, you know, so I, I played football my junior year at West Texas state. And, uh, and then that summer, Dick Murdoch says to me, he said, he said, Hey kid, he said, you know what? He said, I could probably get you booked with Bill Watts. The, the NCAA had changed the ruling where you could now compete in a professional sport uh, and maintain your amateur status in another sport. But uh-huh. as, so, but once you compete and you get paid, then you can't you can't ever go back and be an amateur in that sport. Well, even though wrestling was never considered a real sport, I mean by by law that they they did. But now I could go wrestle and still play football. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds really good. And I, I did, I went, I started for Bill Watts in the summer of 1975. And to this day, Sean, you know, I kicked myself in the rear end, but I never went back to, I had one year left. I had yeah. 30 hours and I'd have had a degree in education and, uh, I didn't do it because wrestling went so well that yeah. summer. I got a little money in my pocket and everything. And I said, this is what I've always wanted to do. And I'm doing it now. And I'm just going to keep going. I mean, everybody, the funks, I mean, even, even, uh, even, even Buck Robley, <laughs> who was, uh, you know, uh, you know, not the most, I mean, he was a great mind in wrestling, but he was, uh, you know, kind of a shady character. He even said, kid, go back to school. You only got one year left. And oh, I didn't do it. Well, you know what? That's uh, there's still another chapter. You can uh, you can still do that these days. Maybe yeah. that's what uh, that's one of your next challenges. But uh, yeah, you talk about that run. I mean, uh, was it seventy five to seventy nine? Uh, and you rose pretty quickly in the ranks. It was it. Were you, did you feel? And I and I'm I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but in, in a sense that you were a natural once you got in there, or was it because they obviously recognized something? Yeah, I mean, and I, I, I think, I think, you know, I'm, it's kind of like my, my dad always said. He says, you know, uh, he said, do what you love. He says, he says, if it, if you're doing something, because I mean, when I, when I, when I played football, he wanted to make sure that I was playing football because I liked it, and not because he did it. But he said, you will, you will do whatever you have to do to be good at something you love. Mm-hmm. 
you'll make whatever sacrifice is necessary. And I found that to be true. So, I mean, I, I was, I, I loved it. And I, you know, and a lot of people said, you know, kid, you, you're just a natural at this. And I mean, I'll even, you know, I'll even fast forward to, you know, I, it, I when I went back in, I think 2005 mm-hmm. and, and they wanted me to come back to the company and they wanted me to, to try being one of the, uh, being on the, uh, the creative team. Right. I tried to tell them then I said, look, I said, I'm not Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you know, I said, Clint's yeah. good on both sides of the camera. I, I said, I'm not the storyteller. I said, you tell me the story. You tell me, you set it up for me and I can go out there in the ring and make it happen. That's where I, that, that's where I'm gifted. Is that the, the, the case with a lot of wrestlers? And I've, I've heard you talk before how, um, you know, you try and ask some of the greatest and say, you know, why do you do this or why'd you do that? And he can't tell you because he's, uh, you know, he's doing what he does. It just comes it's, to it's, them. It's, and, and is that the same exactly. way when they're trying to tell you, okay, then tell people how to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's just it. It's like the idea of me sitting down with another wrestler and mapping out a match for him is absolutely foreign to me. Yeah. Uh, I, and I never did it. And, 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 and actually Vince looked at me one day. And he said, Ted, he said, you know what? You remind me of Ray Stevens. And I said, how's that? He said, Ray was one of the greatest workers we ever had. And so are you. He said, but if you ever asked Ray why he did anything in any given match at any given time, he couldn't really explain it to you. And I said, exactly, because it's called working. Yeah. Well, and I the mean, same with the, with the promos, too. I don't think if, if today they handed you something and said, you know, because a lot of that's the way they do it. But I know, I, I mean, I remember doing interviews with you and – I just, I was like, he just did that. Uh, that wasn't, he wasn't out there studying notes. He he just did that right then. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's, you have the idea, you get the gist of what you're about to talk about. Yeah. But it's just, and it is hard to explain. And, and I remember asking Terry Funk and Dick Murdoch that same question when I was very young and I, cause I was still in college and I, I went to a show with them in the same place, Lubbock, Texas. And yeah driving back that night, drinking a beer. And I said, well, Terry, why'd you do this? And why'd you do that? And he looked at me and he said, and I can't, I'll never forget this. He said, you're not going to understand this right now. It's going to sound like foreign. He yeah. says, but you'll, you'll eventually get it. He said, Teddy, I can't tell you. He said, because when you go out and you do this enough, you, you develop an ear for the crowd. In other words, you, you have a feel sense, yeah. you can feel the crowd yeah. and you know, when it's time to do something and when you do something enough in the course of a, of, of, of a match, you, it's like, you're making the story up as you go. And it's, it's, it's improv. That's the real art of wrestling. It's improv. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of people miss that uh, today, but that's not what this discussion today is about. Uh, But getting back to, you know, because I, I do want to get to the, to, to how it all happened with the WWF, but, uh, you had to earn your way uh, with the uh, Mid South, which was uh, you know a tremendous place to develop your skills. You also did a, a short appearance with I think at the time it was the WWWF, and that you were Hulk Hogan's first match at Madison Square Garden. That's right, the first time seventy nine uh, yeah. in nineteen yeah I think it was <laughs> December seventy nine. Hulk had his very first match in, in, uh, this was before he was a, a superstar mm-hmm. uh, and he was a heel. He was a heel. And I yeah. was the baby face. And, uh, I remember I went to Vince senior cause Vince senior was the boss at the time. And I said, I know you want to get this guy over. 
and I, and it was my last, actually it was my last match in the company. And I was, I was leaving then going back to, uh, to mid South. And I said, you know, how would you like me to get him over? And, uh, boy, he really, you know, and that made me psychology too, you know, but I had kind of a compliment. He said, Ted, he said, I know you'll do it right. He said, do it any way you want, yeah. which is, you know, when, when he told me that I said, wow, okay, well, I'm really going to do it right. And I did. And here's the thing about Hulk too. Hulk thanked me afterwards. And, uh, I mean, he just kept thanking me and he said, you know, he's a, I said, I owe you one brother. Hmm. He's like, you one. And so fast forward. He becomes the big star, you know, WrestleMania three takes place. And it was shortly after that, that Vince brought me back and I started doing the vignettes. And, yeah. but the first time I saw him, the first time that we saw each other after I went back to work for the company, he walks up, he shakes my hand, he winks at me and he says, it's payback time. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, great. that's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'd have to say that is pretty cool. Hulk Hogan, uh, did take care of him. Uh, he, talks about you know uh, many of the opportunities he got and how Hulk definitely put him over when he came in. Uh, there's so much more to the Million Dollar Man. I love that episode because there's so much in it, uh, you know, about living the Million Dollar Man gimmick and you know then reaching rock bottom and almost losing his family and his road to redemption and what having Christ in his life has meant to him. Uh, maybe you saw the movie. I. I've heard that it's going to be coming out on uh, some different platforms. So if you haven't seen it yet, I think you can get that opportunity and it is definitely worth watching. Okay. Uh, now we get to another one of my absolute favorite people in life. Uh, mean Gene, uh, the greatest wrestling announcer ever. That's it. Bar none. The greatest wrestling announcer ever, Gene Okerlund. And no one does it better. And like I say, you know, there's Gene Okerlund and there's the rest of us. And that's the way it is. Nobody comes close. Here's a piece of the podcast uh, when Gene came on, when he talks about where the nickname Mean Gene came from and the rise of the Hulkster and the WWF. Take a listen to my longtime close personal friend, Gene Okerlund. Uh, there's kind of a misconception. Everybody thinks it was the Hulkster who who crown or gave you the nickname mean gene but it was jesse right it was jesse and i'd say that'd be uh circa 1977 yeah. uh and a, a classic story i'm not going to repeat it but uh <laughs> jesse uh, was, was pretty good at doing things like that yeah. and he was into the rock scene so he was a big name dropper and he was really a, a target for a, a mean gene character yeah that's great and it it stuck and, uh, but he was just one of, you know, I, I you look at, at some of these great names that came out of Minnesota and Robbinsdale. I mean, uh, Ganya went to that high school there at Robbinsdale high school, but you know, also, you know, Kurt Hennig and, and, uh, Rich Rude. Yes. Who would be. Uh, and and Rude. certainly the Legion of doom. Yeah. The berserker, uh, John Nord. The, the, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Viking and the berserker and a ton of other aliases. You imagine going uh, to that high school, Gene? <laughs> well, <laughs> it must seem like, uh, you know, like Marvel, yeah. like Marvel comic to, books, you know. Yeah, I'd hate to see what the uh, wrestling team looked like. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, uh, that's right. where they were shooting. That yeah, that must have been something. But um, what? But Minnesota? Do you think what, it was because of Ganya and and these wrestlers came there and they raised their families, or why was it such a hotbed for professional wrestling? 
because they, they were they were traveling four days a week, and most of it was by air, so yeah. it was easy travel. You weren't sitting in a car nine hours a day, driving uh, five, six hundred miles between uh, towns and working seven days a week. So it was kind of the good life, and the pay, quite honestly, Sean, yeah. was very good for a wrestler. Uh, even a, a mid-card guy would, back in those days, in the uh, early 70s, was making a hundred grand or a hundred and a quarter. Wow! And yeah. that's good money today, but that's it was money. great money back then. Yeah. And with that kind of a plush schedule, it was even more uh, in demand. Yeah. Um, did you first meet uh, Terry Balea I th- before you, before WWF? Right? Did I he met go him to the AWA. T- yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, the first really stand-up interviews that he ever did was done with uh with me right and i i I, we had numerous takes on uh market specific interviews Mm -hmm. and uh finally it 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 all kind of fell in place and this character developed and Mm -hmm. that's let me tell you something brother yeah yeah Yeah, that's that's where all that came from yeah 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 and but but there were rough beginnings it's kind of hard for us to to see that but when uh the hulkster and you see in some of those early matches that uh you know as we saw what it rose to it, it's interesting to see the very beginning of that and you were you were right there so it it, it did take a little smoothing of the edges and uh you were there to help him out <laughs> well as a matter of fact uh, even today he credits me with uh, uh helping him out initially and uh, as a result of that, I got a, uh, a huge payday on teaming up with him in uh, our, our, our home territory there in Minneapolis out at the Old Met Center. And we drew about 16,000 people. Oh. And Hulk Hogan and Mean Gene met the team of George the Animal Steel and the <laughs> nefarious Mr. Fuji. Yes, yeah, so and who got who the pin? Great... Yeah, right. <laughs> and I got the pin. You got the Thanks pin. Thanks to Hogan. Yeah. Throwing me up in the air. But Fuji, I was uh, kind of uh, leery of him. He had that that famous finishing hole that took many of opponents out, and that was the old five-on-two. That's funny. Um, Did you see, though, at the beginning that that there was something about uh, Terry Balea, about about who would become Hulk Hogan? Did you? I mean, besides just the stature and everything, but did you see something in him right away? He came off the movie Rocky Three, where he'd worked with uh, Stallone. Yeah. And initially, before he even arrived, he had gone after the movie out uh, on a vacation out in uh, Hawaii to work with uh, Ed Francis and uh, Lord Alfred uh, or Lord James Blairs and mm-hmm. uh, some of the guys out there. I think even Morocco was uh, was out there at that time. But uh, uh, he 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 came in, and uh, actually, I had a cutout of him that I would talk about this guy that was going to be coming to the AWA mm-hmm. in the next uh, few weeks. And uh, we put him over as kind of a, a heel. And his manager, who was with me, was a guy by the name of Luscious Johnny Valiant, uh-huh. who I'm sure you remember yeah. very well. Nobody could figure out what the hell he was saying, but that <laughs> was neither here nor there. <laughs> didn't but, matter. But, but all of a sudden, they take a look at Hogan, and they didn't want to buy him. As a bad guy, Vern Gagne, right. being a pretty good judge of character, said this guy needs to be a baby face. Uh-huh. And uh, hence, uh, 
uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, Incredible Hulk Hogan, uh, Eye of the Tiger, all of those things that kind of disappeared on that character as it emerged to what it uh, ended up being at, say, like a WrestleMania 1. And folks, you just heard a clip from uh, one of the greatest wrestling announcers of all time who came on the podcast, who also happens to be one of the funniest human beings on the planet. My close personal friend, as I said, being Gene Okerlund. Uh, that uh, phrase that he coined and uses it often, and it never gets old. Next up in the lineup is Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, here are the best of. Uh, he is absolutely, if you've ever had a chance to be near the guy, you know that he is one of the most dynamic individuals you've ever met. And what an incredible story. Uh, here's a guy who really, uh, you know, this I just found this so incredible. Here's a guy who really didn't get into the business until he was in his 30s. He didn't start wrestling until he was in his mid-30s. And look what he has accomplished. Just amazing. This segment covers how he finally decided to go for it when he was still managing a dance club in Florida. Here's how it all happened as told by DDP. We had the hottest spot from Sarasota to Cuba. I mean, it was, <laughs> it, I used to call, I used to call it the, uh, yeah, the hot one where every second sizzles. And, uh, you know, it was almost too. So you got that down. <laughs> right. And I'm doing it for the club. Again, if I didn't have all of that, there is no way what I'm just about to do to start to manage and be in the AWA and all that with bad company. There's no way it happens. So this is the craziest part of it, though. So I haven't seen the boys haven't been around because they weren't booking down in Fort Myers for a while there. And one night I'm watching girls just want to have fun on the video as I'm collecting the drawers for, you know, from the from the from the cash registers. Uh -huh. And you remember Captain Lou was in. Oh, yeah. That. Rock yeah, and wrestling. And, right. And, exactly. So I'm yeah. watching that. This is like 1987, the end of 87. And I'm talking to myself and I'm just going, man, rock and wrestling. Mm -hmm. I should have been a part of that. <laughs> and I walked away. Now, my head bartender, Smokey, he comes walking in the bar. And he's, no one knew the nickname Dallas that my dad had for me. Nobody knew about that. And so he called me Page J because my dad was Page One and he was working for me at the time. Yeah. And he comes in, he goes, Page J. He goes, well, what did you mean, rock and wrestling? You should have been a part of that. I said, well, I actually tried it when I was a kid. He goes, get out of here. He goes, <laughs> what was your name? I said, Handsome Dallas Page. <laughs> and, and Smokey goes, whoo. You can forget about using that gimmick anymore. And everybody <laughs> laughed. <laughs> and, you know, so now we're drinking, right? You know, the drawers are counted. It's after hours. And sometimes we might drink to four or five in the morning, you know. And uh, I just can't get it out of my head. Everybody's got their own conversation going, right? Uh -huh. But I'm sitting at my desk. And I'm... I've got this pad, a blotter that's got, you know, like the days of the month on it. You know, what I would doodle on, you know? Uh -huh. And I'm just writing it over and over and over again. And I write, Diamond Dallas Page. And I look up and I go, you know what? 
I'm too old to be a wrestler today. At that time, I was 31 and a half. I said, I'm too old to be a wrestler. I said, but what if I was a wrestling manager and my name was Diamond Dallas Page? Everybody's like, woo, woo, shot, shot, drink, drink. You know, because the shots are going now. And then again, I'm writing it down. And then I look up and I go, a little while later, I go, you know, Jimmy Hart, he's got the Hart Foundation. What if I had the Diamond Exchange? Woo, shot, shot, yeah. drink, drink. So, you know, so now, now we're getting, we got a good buzz going. And I just go, you know, there, there's, Too there's, many. Women in, there's, there's women in wrestling. You know, there's women. But the only one that's really good looking is Elizabeth. And she's like girl next door hot. I said, what if I had a whole group of the girls and I called them Diamond Dolls and they were stripper hot? Everybody's like, whoa, that'll be a stretch. Whoa, drink, drink, shot, shot, shot. shot. This is all happening in one night, all this company. All in one night. And remember, I'm writing it down on this pad, just scribbling it. And then at some point, we're getting ready to go. And I go, Diamond Dolls page. His wrestlers are from the Diamond Exchange, and he has the Diamond Dolls. I go, that is B-A-double-D bad. And I just stop myself. I go, did I steal that from somebody, or did I just make that up? I write that down. And I wrote that down and left. Now, a week goes by, Sean. Yeah. And remember, I I do all my own commercials. I do these synthesizer voices. You don't know if there's wrestling. I'm doing these funny voices, you know, plus wrestling voices. And so this thing calls the Party News Network. They're a little cable, you know, thing. They, they, it's on this little cable network. It's just in the Southwest Florida region. And they have the Party News Network. And they want to interview the guy behind the voice. <laughs> so they film me in my 62 pink Cadillac. They fill, and this is up. All of this I'm saying right now is up on my Diamond Dallas, my DDP Yoga Now app under Motivational Mondays. These are the first stories I tell on Motivational Monday. And I give you the footage to watch it. So you can see I'm not just talking smack. (laughs) I back everything up. So they film me at the radio studio, bro. I'm wearing a WrestleMania three t-shirt. <laughs> I've got the long flowing blonde hair. You know, I'm about six, four, I'm down about, about two twenty, and, uh, and I'm cutting the promo. And then at some point they get me in Norma jeans uh-huh. and they, they're interviewing me and they say, so where does the voice come from? And I'm sitting at my desk now. And I look down at that written copy. That's, been scribbled on that blotter and right next to it. If these white sunglasses aren't sitting there, I don't know if I do it, but Uh. because they are, I grab those sunglasses. I throw them on and I go, boy, the voice comes from Diamond Dallas page. Did it? I was born to be a professional wrestling manager. It's big. (laughs) It's bad. Norma Jean's voice. And I took the glasses off and I finished the promo or the interview. Yeah. A week, well, this, a week later, it plays. I get a call. 
from a guy who, um, his name is Smitty. He has his own sports talk show. It's mainly about boxing. But he's having wrestling this week. And Captain Lou is going to be on his show. Uh. And he calls me up and he asks me to be on the show with him. And I'm like, Smitty, I made all that up. I don't, <laughs> I don't really do it. Uh. And he's like, who cares? Yeah. It's radio. <laughs> and I went, can I really talk to Captain Lou? He's like, yeah. I go, I'm in. And, and then I did another one with him about a month later with Sergeant Slaughter. And you know, Bob is the class of the field. Yeah. I mean, he is, he made it sound like he'd known me for years. Yeah, exactly. These guys don't work. <laughs> he was you over. Oh God. It was like, it was like, oh my God. So we end that show and Smitty says to me, you know, Paige, you need to do something with this Diamond Dallas Page thing. You're a natural. I go, do what, bro? It's just in my head. He goes, it's more than in your head. He goes, I'm telling you, you've got something there. I've not known DDP very long, but I have to tell you, uh, he has become a, a good friend, and I, I, he just leads by example. The, what the guy has done is just amazing. And it's incredible to learn that one of the reasons he eventually stepped into the ring is because he was too tall to be a manager. What an incredible guy. Oh, and DDP yoga really works. You should check it out. Now, back in October this past year, I did an appearance at the Big Event 13 in Queens, New York. Brutus the Barber Beefcake and I spent a lot of time together that weekend because we also did another show in Allentown that same weekend. The promoter is the, the same the same promoter brought us in together. Now, Brutus's book was about to come out. I know it's out now. So the timing was perfect for him to come on the podcast. And one of my favorite parts of our conversation was when he talked about when he learned he was going to become Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Needless to say, he wasn't happy. I thought it was somebody was mad at me. It was a curse. Yeah, Why you weren't pleased change? by this. You weren't Why, pleased by I this. Was I was like changing my gimmick now. I, I'd spent three years and roaring, raging across the country, all over the place. Everything hot as red hot on fire. And now, and now, and now I got to change it. And uh, so, yeah, I was, I was real upset. I didn't know what to do at this point. The whole barber, where where to go with this barber thing, and then, but you know, thank God for the a, a friend in Hulk Hogan. He was there, and he came up with a couple ideas. And is this after after you took the locker room apart, or is this? Because? Yeah, yeah, that's after <laughs> I dislocated a bunch of lockers, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he called me down, said, "Brutus, why don't? What if we did this and this and this?" And I said, "Hmm, you know, wow." Uh, yeah, if, if we can do that consistently and, and keep it up for a while, this thing might have a chance. So then, yeah, he went to the office, said, here's, here's what we ought to do, and blah, 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 and this is how we can work it. And, you know, they love the idea. So, boom, we put it into action. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, Brutus was strutting around the ring, pulling out scissors, putting the guy, after I put him in the sleeper, I pulled out scissors. And then would drape them with a, a cloth or paint them, 
with some hairspray. I'd cut their hair and get a mirror and show them the show them the results, and the people went bananas. Yeah. Now, I think that what what is really important here too, though, is that I know that uh, one of the things you said though is that if I'm going to do this, then it has to happen every time I go in the ring. And yeah, why was I that mean, so key? Well, here's the thing. It's like just you know, for example. It's like Hulk Hogan. After every match, he went out and posed and did a whole routine, got the people all into a frenzy. And every time, after every match, no matter what the outcome, he always did that. And the people always stayed there and waited and and watched for for that event. And it helps. It's what establishes you and gets you over. And by seeing that haircut, by using that sleeper hold and, and 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 getting that haircut, I mean you can't obviously get it every every time, but ninety percent of the time, ninety five percent of the time, people were getting their haircut. Sometimes yeah. even a manager, sometimes this, sometimes that, but it, it kept the gimmick so hot. People knew when they got to the arena that they were gonna see a haircut, and they came for it. Yeah. And, and were, were you a little bit uh, like skeptical? Like, I, I don't know if this is going to work. And when did you realize that this is over big time? Well, after the first, you know, after the first four five, six TVs, you do, you know, those those TV days every few weeks. And after, you know, it started it started picking up steam, you know, the haircut thing started getting over. You could feel it and hear it from the reaction of the crowds. And, uh, you know, I started feeling, you know, getting into the, to the character and plugging in the, you know, plugging my personality and everything and into the Brutus and getting, uh, came up with the idea to get the big shears and come to that, that. And then I redesigned my own outfits and changed them up and put fishnet and all kinds of crazy stuff and came out in these, you know, even more wilder outfits than I had been wearing. And then, and the people loved it. it. Just everything I did. It was, you know, I was just fortunate to have good, good help, good people around me, and and uh, and just I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do any wrong. Almost, yeah, was, yeah. everything and, was right. Yeah, and you had some, you had really had some great feuds, and I, I loved the gimmick. I really, I was the same way. I could, we would love to see what you know when you you cut these guys here. It was a, it was such, it was such a shoot. I mean, you know, you can't like just. You can't make hair, you know, get back on somebody's head. So people loved seeing it. And uh, you had some great feuds, you know, one with the Honky Tonk Man. I remember, the, you know, the Peggy Sue matches with uh, Sherry. And then you had uh, George Animal Steel with, with Georgina. Right. That was, and you also feuded with Randy Savage. And then uh, the Hulk and the Zeus, or when we had the No Holds Barred matches, you were you were involved in those as well. Uh wow. Of those, what you, what stands out to you? What, what, what of those uh, feuds? What were the ones that really stood out? Was there one that you really enjoyed the most? Well, I, you know, Randy was a challenge to work with, but we always had fantastic matches. Yeah. You know, Mister yeah. Perfect, uh, uh, different guys, ravishing Rick Rude, you know, tremendous talent, junkyard dog. I mean, I got to I was working with everybody, and you know, it was just was just amazing you know those those times that the, the personnel the personnel that we had to, to work with was great no question uh brutus certainly made the absolute most out of the barber gimmick tell me come on tell me that you couldn't wait to see him cut someone's hair in the ring that was absolute genius uh, be sure to check out uh 
that podcast, and also uh, pick up a copy of Brutus's new book just out, Strutting and Cutting with Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Uh, Brutus Beefcake, uh, you, uh, I know he's got a, a ton of stories, and you're going to learn a lot more about that whole uh, period of time in his life when he was not only in the ring, but also uh, how he and Hulk uh, changed uh, the world of professional wrestling. Of course, the Hulkster, but uh, Brutus was right there with him. Okay, now that same trip where I spent all that time with Brutus, I also reconnected with Fred Ottman. Now, he is uh, best known as Tugboat. He had a few other gimmicks along the way during his time with the WWF, though we knew him as Tugboat. And of course, uh, when he joined the Natural Disasters. And what an awesome guy he is. Uh, there's few I've met in the business who are more grateful, and really, for sure, than Fred. Uh, for what professional wrestling has brought to his life. Uh, he's also had a, has a tremendous sense of humor and some great stories to tell. With that, take a listen to the story of one of his first tryouts when he was just getting started. You told me the, uh, about when you first started to, to train. You decided mm -hmm. you wanted to get into this, but you had to do kind of a tryout. Uh, I believe it was oh, yeah. Malenko. So tell tell that story because it, it is it's pretty yeah. fascinating and and how you did it. So you know, kind of leading well, up, I think you had worked out just before oh, yeah. you got. Tell me the whole story. Oh yeah, my I I come. I was making the big move to come up to Tampa from down there because I'd be able to train five or six days a week. Yeah, and I'd already started training down there in South Florida with those guys, and so I came up here, moved. Up, I was living with my folks when I first got up to tampa bay and they live about an hour north of tampa in brooksville florida uh -huh. and uh so malenko comes to me and goes uh, uh i want you to meet a friend of mine that's very, my very very good friend he's carl gotch and i knew who he was mm -hmm. he was like he was the god that you know took wrestling to japan and made you know wrestling in japan really what it was mm -hmm. you know i mean he's a god over there matter of fact there was a ceremony this year held for him with Joe Malenko. But, uh, so I say, Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So he tells me he hooks it up for Saturday morning. I wake up early in the morning. My mother is from West Virginia. So she's a country cook. I wake up, she fixed me big biscuits and gravy <laughs> and the ham, eggs, the whole nine yards. Yeah. So I eat this big, big, big breakfast and shoot over to, to a gym that's in town there. A little gym that I trained at when I was with my mom and dad. And uh, trained for like two hours. Had a heavy workout. Had a great workout. Matter of fact, my dad took some pictures with the paper there. Uh, it was local. And so my dad drives me into Tampa. Yeah, you're you all know, pumped to up. To take me to Malenko. Oh, yeah. I'm, I want to look good. You know, I'm going to meet yeah. this. This guy's a legend. You know, I'm going to meet him. I want to make an impression, right? So I get there and uh, Malenko hooks up with us. And he takes me out to... Uh, Carl's house in Odessa, Florida, uh, Odessa, Florida, which is North Tampa. So I go out there, he introduces me and he walks around, he's looking at me and that stuff. First thing he does, he says, he's showing me all the different things that he used during his training, you know, in his, his big two car garage and he's loaded with stuff, Indian clubs, all the old school stuff. Yeah. The first thing he does is he has me do what the, uh, a deck of cards, which, you do push-ups and squats, and the, you have the red and you have the black, yeah. you know, colors in the suits. And, uh, er, you know, you uh, whatever the number comes that you throw out on the deck of cards, okay, you uh, 
you do that many reps of whatever the, the exercise is for that color. Uh-huh. It will either be push-ups or squats. And by the time you're finished doing a deck of cards, you've done, you know, pretty close to 600 uh, <laughs> reps. Or did you know Did you know you were going to be working out? I mean, did, or you just thought you were no, meeting No, I have no clue. I, I figured I'm just coming to meet this guy. And right. automatically takes me in there. And this is the first thing before we even get started. Oh. You know, he has me in there. And I blew my breakfast that, all over his lawn. And they big Virginia laughing. breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, man. All over the lawn, by cutting, I'm like, okay, yeah, okay. Takes me in there. He's got these things, the iron bow. It's what the archers used to train with when they were shooting arrows on horseback uh, in India back in the day, you know, and it's 80 pounds of weights on one side with a a steel uh, bow like you would shoot arrows with, and you're doing this exercise. Then the Indian clubs, he's got the big leather mannequin dick thing to throw around, and Oh, my God. I threw up about two or three more times <laughs> by the time was, everything was said and done. You know, we wanted to make sure I get that meal out of there, you know. Yeah. Whatever like, was oh left. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. So what an introduction. What, yeah. You know, I, I figure I'm going to meet, to shake your hand, say hi, and talk to a man. A little he flexing. Out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. No flexing. No flexing. <laughs> no. Just throwing up a lot. That's it. I think you could tell uh, during that clip that I was really enjoying that story. That was just hilarious as him talking about here he goes to just meet a guy and then ends up having to do this unbelievable workout after having a very, very large breakfast. Uh, things did get better. <laughs> That's for sure. And in the podcast, Fred goes on to talk about becoming tugboat, on how much he enjoyed being a part of the natural disasters, and the great friendship that he developed with the man known as Earthquake, John Tenta. Now, let's move on to the man we all know as the Birdman, Coco Beware. Now, Coco, I could say, was not only someone I enjoyed working with back in the day, but I also really considered him a friend then. Uh, I used to see him a lot, and uh, it had been a while. I mean, after catching up with him more than 20 years later, I was quickly reminded about how passionate he was about the business and just how you know genuinely funny he is. And no story displayed that more than when he talked about the first time he took the bird Frankie to the ring and then goes on to describe what he went through trying to train that bird. Listen to this. That is unbelievable. You you never handled birds. You didn't have birds around the house. No, no, no never just, did. I'm going to get this bird. And You know, I just had, I just had picked out this, this bird, uh, this blue and gold macaw bird with the big beak on it and everything. Yeah. And I just had it on my pants that, that, down in mid South and everywhere else just had it on my pants. And then I said, this will be great if I can. Uh, and then we came, then my wife's golly bless her heart. She's gone on to heaven. Yeah. She, she, she came up with the music when Mars day in the time, when they came out with uh, the bird. Yeah. Have a brand new dance. It's called a bird. And Mars Day, we, me and her went to a movie, and he was doing on that Purple Rain. Yeah, he was doing that Prince. song. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was doing that song, and she said, "You could, you could take this dance." And, and of course, she was a dance teacher anyway, with our cheerleaders, cheerleaders right. and stuff like right. that. And she said, "You could take this dance to the ring, and it's so easy to do. Mom and Dad, Granddad and Grandpa, and all of them can do it." You know, it's so easy, you know, 
And uh, and I say, oh my god! So I got she said, let's just play the music and play. And cause see, when when that song came out, he really didn't push that song. Uh, Mars Davis didn't push that song. He pushed Jungle Love. Right. Oh, and Jungle Love was big. Yeah, but but the, that 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 song, the Bird 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 song, was on a very. It was on the last song of the album. Right, but did you have to get permission to use it? I mean, did he? Did well, after I said okay, we, <laughs> we did that. Now, at first, we at first we, you know, they came out with it and played it a couple of times. Then uh, I think the office got a uh, got a letter, or some some about you know, but Cease Trump and it, so, <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but see, right. the only thing they messed it. They, hey, Mars Daniel messed their own self up on that. They could have made. They could have made more, uh, so more records off of it because people were starting going to the music store buying it. Yeah, right. right. Off of just because I was doing it. Yeah. And, and then they said, y'all got to cut it out and stuff like that. You know, we're going we're gonna to crack down on you and stuff like that. So that's where I brought my gospel group in along with Jimmy Hart that got the, that wrote this song, uh, Another bird, bird, bird song. Come on, everybody, get up off yeah. your, feet, your feet, put your hands together, and do yeah. the Birdman. Yeah, yeah, I remember and, that uh, well. So, right, and so Jimmy, Jimmy, and people and don't we, know we, that you were you you can you can sing. Right? Yeah, you, sang, you know, of course, you sang forever, right? Yeah, singing, singing in church, you know, all yeah. my life and stuff like playing the lead guitar and a little piano and stuff like that, and uh, but. Well, when we came out with that, uh, there was Coco Beware Gospel Group at the time, and uh, man, uh, that that's what that's what, and and uh, Mars Daniel couldn't say nothing because they wasn't a song, but it was a big hit, and the people could dance to it. Yeah, they they, they know? blew their shot. They blew their chance. So, but before we uh, talk about the uh, you know the serious uh, side of this of how you were catapulted into the stratosphere with the WWF I I want to know how in the world you figure out a hand handle not only just having Frankie around but you had to travel with him on the road not only so what did you take uh, you know birds are us course did you how did you learn to handle a, a bird that was a big it wasn't a little parakeet you're talking this huge Macaw, right? Well, That's I what it was. It, it took it, it. It took me a minute. The first night they brought Frank <laughs> Frankie in to Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland TV. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Pat Patterson and myself was, in fact, they brought him in. Wow! In this cage, Pat Patterson and ourselves was trying to get the bird out of the cage. He wouldn't come out. <laughs> He wouldn't come out. I wouldn't of the cage. come out either. But the must have been. Yeah, you got to go out. And- he's squawking and going on. <laughs> and, and Pat going, Coco, you sure you want to do this? After <laughs> sure Pat, I got to do this. What are you crazy? <laughs> right, right. I got, I got to do this, Pat. He said, I said, this is part of my gimmick. And he said, Golly, they just, they just sent this thing in from Brazil, and this thing is wild as heck, Coco. Look at him. He's Biting on the cage, he's chewing the cage up. And uh, so, so, uh, so, so Pat said he's not coming out, Coco. He's not coming out. <laughs> and uh, I the said, bird Pat, what we going out? <laughs> right. I said, Pat, what we what we gonna have to do is we're gonna have to disassemble the cage. 
So me and Pat started unscrewing all the screws and stuff like that. And we, <laughs> man, you took the we took all the screws apart from around the bird. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just took the, took the little dog cage away and then, and then we disassembled it. And then, of course, the bird didn't have no, he couldn't, he couldn't do nothing but just stand there and look at us in the cage. So, so I'm, was I'm going. Where, where the wings clipped so it couldn't fly off in the arena? That would have been at, something. <laughs> well, at the time, we was in the back of the dressing room. Yeah. All this was, was in the dressing room first. And then, uh, so we, I had to, we had to hold him down, uh, try to, try to, I put a towel over his head. I remember that watching, Frankie's watching the, now, right? <laughs> right. Oh, he's pissed big time, you know, so I put a towel over his head and stuff like that. And, uh, and, I'm and we're trying to, trying to have something. I can't remember what was, had something to hold his head down because they they gave us a while. They gave us a chain to put around his leg so he won't fly away. <laughs> so I mean, I put this. This is first time this ever. They have pictures of this in Baltimore. This is first time I I took Frankie out with a chain on his leg, first and last. So we finally finally goes out uh, for the show. Right. Here it is. I got this, I got Frankie. I got him. I got Frankie in my hand, in my right hand, and he's holding on. He's biting my fingers and all that stuff. And I'm still trying to do the Birdman dance and not letting the people know that this bird's biting the crap out of me <laughs> and stuff. My 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 fingers are bleeding and going on and and golly, you know. And I'm going. I'll come back I, when we, when the match was over. I don't know if I won or anything like that. I didn't really care. I was bored was get back at trying to get back at Frank and I, I was kind of pissed at Frank. I was like, man, oh, you yeah. bit me. You did this. You did that. I said, hey. and then Pat said, Coco, you sure you want to do this? Cause this bird, look at you bleeding. Crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, uh, I said, Pat, it's going to be me, me or that bird in the morning. <laughs> You're going to see me or him. Oh, no. Cause I'm telling you right Somebody's now, going to be the boss by tomorrow, right? <laughs> right. I said, you know, so I, I finally took him after it's all over with, got him in the hotel. Sean, I stayed up practically all night fooling with him, and they had to fly out the next morning. Yeah. And uh, and trying I'm, to get I'm, him to stay on your arm and the whole thing, or were yes, you? Yes, I'm working with Frankie. I'm working yeah. with him. Didn't have nothing to work with, so I finally, I finally, uh. Got into uh, I think it was Buffalo, so I went to a a pet store and and got books and stuff like that. And I talked to some uh, bird trainers was was in the store. I said, "How you come? How you how you calm a bird down?" He said, "Do you read all? You got to read everything in this book to calm him down." And they said, and the guy told me, "said Coco," he said, "Oh, he know he didn't know me about Coco." He just said, "Here, you put this book down." Go over there and get you two sticks. He said, see these two perch sticks? He said, that's how you train your bird. He said, you got you got a, you got a, you got a, you got a little stand that he sets on. All right. He said, get him off that stand by pushing him. When he steps, push, put that stick up on his chest, he'll step up like he's going to look. He don't want to fall backwards. Either he's going to step up or he's going to fall back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And so, 
So he said, start rotating these sticks. And what you're doing, you're playing games with him, and he's stepping up all the time. He's stepping up as you rotate the sticks. What you're doing, you're getting him real tired so you can you can work with him. <laughs> okay. In other words, what we call blowing his ass up. <laughs> That's right. You know, you're gonna wear him down. So, so when Frank is all exhausted and everything, his little tongue was coming out. I could see that, <laughs> and you know, and like, okay, all right, I had enough. I had enough. Yeah, what and, do you and want then, me to do? And, yeah. and then I set him on the perch. Now, now Frankie's step up on my up on my hand. Now reach out my hand. Oh man, he was just Sean. He was just like like he was just clockwork. I mean. He just stepped right up like he's been doing this all the time. I still, I still laugh when I'm list, when listening to that. That is just, that is really, it's got to be one of the most hilarious stories uh, ever told on primetime. And it, it, I just, you, you got, you have that picture in your, in your head of, you know, they had to take the, the cage apart. And then when he get when he takes the bird out to the ring, it's like biting him. <laughs> it's like, that's just a, a great story. And, I really loved having uh, Coco on. Um, on the other end of that, uh, you know, uh, that great sense of humor, though, um, he was also a very intense individual you didn't want to mess with. Um, in the podcast, we also talked about an infamous fight. You know, the one I'm talking about, the one with one of the company's executives in Brussels. And, uh, man, you talk about intense. It remains the only episode of primetime, folks, that received an e-advisory for explicit language. And uh, like I said, I wanted to keep that in. We had, we talked, oh, should we beep it or whatever? I said, no, no, that's for people to really understand that story. You had to hear it, every word of it from Coco. And also, uh, I'd never really heard about that conversation that he had had with Vince uh, after that happened. And so uh, if you want to hear the real story, word for word, really check it out. Uh, check the podcast with Coco Beware out on primetime. Now, if uh, you were a fan of the Nasty Boys, probably one of the reasons was because they were so unpredictable and crazy. Well, uh, I can tell you, and I know this for a fact, I witnessed it on many occasions, that that is exactly the way knobs and sags were out of the ring as well. Uh, Time to provide some evidence. (laughs) In the podcast with Brian Knobs, when he was our guest, uh, <clears throat> believe it or not, uh, he is, uh, he, he tells a, a great story. Um, and, and he has uh, along the way made friends with some of the, uh, you know, most famous people around and most famous names in entertainment. And, and they're still his friends. Uh, like we're going to start this little clip here. He talks about meeting up with Alec Baldwin and about the night he spent with his good pal, Willie Nelson. That's right, Willie Nelson. All right, you got to give me some more Hollywood stories because I know you've got a lot of pals out there, and <laughs> and 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 how you walked yourself into a lot of these situations. Well, I was just being me. I'm I'm a very friendly person, I, you know, and I just you know I'm I love I love sports, I love movies, you know. So when I see someone and give them their due, I always you know if I didn't meet them, I always give them their due. I mean. First of all, I've been friends with uh, Willie Nelson for for man forever since 1988, and uh, that happened. Yeah, you've been we, up on stage with him, right? Yeah, I've been on stage, been on stage <laughs> with Farm Eight. Even I had yeah. hacks on her, <laughs> my wife Tony, and hacks on his yeah. wife. 
we're we're at the Farm Aid singing the last song with uh, John Cougar, Mellencamp, uh, Neil Young. Uh, I think uh, Dave Matthews was up there, Hootie and the Blowfish singing "Made a Circle Being Broken" at the end of the concert at the in South Carolina, and we had the and it was on TV too. And we had the greatest. It was it was some it was some fun, you know. Uh, and uh, what's his name? Crosby was there from Crosby, Stills and Nash, and we we're just singing right along with them. Yeah. Who would have thought, you know? So, uh, but Willie, uh, I got to meet Willie here in Florida when we were Florida Championship Wrestling, and Dusty had come back and took over Florida Championship Wrestling, uh, and was partners with Mike Graham and Steve Kern, and we were wrestling down here at the time with the Florida Tag Team Champs, and we were wrestling in um, Sarasota, and he sent me and Sag and Dustin Gold Dust, his son over to meet Willie and Willie was backing up. Everybody had left and Willie's bus was the only one there at Ruth Eckerd hall. And we stopped it. And all of a sudden we said, Hey, hello. And the, the bus driver, now that I know him, I know them very well since 88, the whole family and been out to Willie's house and out in Austin had good times and farm aids and everything like that. But we went up and believe it or not, Willie pulled in and, and we went on the bus and we had the best time ever. You didn't call security. It, like, no, it was all these security was even gone. The building was closed. Willie was leaving the stage there for a little bit, and he backed he backed the bus up. Told him to shut it off because Dusty told him to tell us. That Dusty sent us, so Dusty called right. Willie. Dusty yeah. and Willie were good friends, and he liked it. Liked the stories. We were cracking open beers, and uh, you know, and you know, partaking with Willie. And everybody knows Willie. So in, in his favorite uh, pastime. <laughs> we, but that, yeah, we, we definitely have spot. We definitely had smile. Eighty-eight, so 89, 90. I know Willie for two more years. So, and the fourth year, knowing Willie, who sings at the WrestleMania Seven? But Willie, Willie. Well, and, and he probably has you to thank for that, right? Oh, but no. <laughs> but, oh, but listen, all the guys were wanting to meet him, Sean. Yeah. So yeah, Lanza and everybody. You know, over just watching him sing the thing and staying their distance by the rail and letting him do his thing and seeing. I think he sang "America the Beautiful." Yeah. And uh, uh, hear me and Sai come rolling up. Heard Willie was doing sound check, and we come walk out, and everybody's out wants their wants his autograph, kind of, and say hello to him. And he stops it, stops in the middle of his singing the song, and looks at me and Sag and goes, "How are you guys doing? Get on up here." He came up here. <laughs> In the ring, he gave him a big hug, and everybody from land. Like, what the and, hell? You know, I had the big mouth drop. Like he knows the nasty voice. <laughs> <laughs> and then that That's night, great. you know, after we sang, I was in yeah. out with him before our match, and I said, "Hey, if we win tonight, which I knew we were gonna win, I didn't tell him that either." I said, "We're coming to party with you." He goes, "Come on over. I'm staying at the Holiday Inn, Santa Monica." And we won the belts, and I took me and Sag, uh, John Michaels. Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, uh, I mean, I mean, Mr. Perfect, uh, Paul Diamond, the Axe, Larry the Axe was with us. I don't know how many guys, and we went and got him downstairs. I gave him the, I gave him the belt. He thought I gave it to him to keep, and he was wearing the WWF Tag Team Championship. I got pitched <laughs> around his waist like it was a country belt buckle. He had yeah. a big smile on his face, and then he had one of these things that go, like, you remember them things that said the last word? It would say, you know, you talk and you press it, go, eat shit. F you, just that the other. Well, he had one of them, and every time I would talk, he would hit it, and everybody la he'd laugh, and all the wrestlers would laugh. I said, Willie, if you do that one more time, I swear to God, I'm going to put you in an airplane spin here and spin you as fast as I can. 
and Taking he hit it. Belt back. Put in an airplane spin. <laughs> his legs were going. Gator and LG. LG's his security. We're going. Put him down, knobs. Put him down because they knew me that four years now. Then I put him down. And he's like eighty. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not then. He's no. He was in his sixties. Yeah, you can see was sixties. Oh, okay. That's all right then. To... <laughs> hey, he loves. He loved me to death, and we yeah. we were the best of friends since then. Yeah, that's you know? awesome. That's uh, isn't it? Isn't it amazing though, Brian? Of you know, it, you know, they always say like movie actors want to be rock stars, and you know, but movie stars and rock stars want to be wrestlers. I mean, it isn't. I mean, it isn't amazing that I don't so know how many, how many times baseball players. Are you kidding me? And hockey players. Yeah. They all, you know, it is. Yeah. It's just incredible. It's that always amazed me that they were. You'd see these people come to the events, and they were uh, honestly starstruck by the guys. It was just uh, amazing to me to see when you th- when you know oh, that is a you know guy that was like this huge movie star, and he's just wants to see Hulk or you know wants to see the Nasty Boys or whatever. They're just starstruck. Yeah, I, I, it's uh, it's unbelievable, man. It, yeah. it is. You know, Nobs has got to look back and just think, um, uh, how did that all happen? Because man. Uh, his life has been one mad roller coaster ride, and uh, during that time, him and Sags never got off. Uh, every day was an adventure, and uh, you know, next time, next time, I want to get both of them on the the show, and I'm I'm just gonna you know welcome everybody, and then I'm just gonna say go, because <laughs> they'll just be entertaining. I don't need to say any; they'll be totally entertaining. I don't have to say anything, uh, so I'm gonna try and make that happen. Now, from one of the wildest tag teams to the absolute most intense, the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal. See my voice drop just saying it? Once Mike Headstrand and Joe Laurinaitis teamed up in the ring, uh, you have to admit, tag teams were never the same again. The incredible brute strength that those two displayed in the ring was just amazing. But they were also great in front of a camera. I mean, come on. All I have to do is utter one phrase, and it's all coming back. Oh, what a rush. Not a very good version of it, but you know what I'm talking about. That They were just amazing. Now, when I had Joe Laurinaitis on recently, uh, we certainly covered a lot of ground, but what really touched me was the conversation we had about Mike Hegstrand's struggles with his addiction and the impact of his loss. When we came back, Hawk had a whole different attitude. That's why Hawk offered, you know, the stuff we did with DX, you know, shave my head, you can beat us and all that stuff. Yeah. And that whole drunken angle that Hawk did, which I hated as well, yeah. I despise yeah. that angle because because yeah. to me that was too close to home. Hawk had his issues, and now you're giving him carte blanche to go party and be drunk and act like it on TV. And yeah. Here you have one of the baddest street fighters of all time in our business, and you're letting him act like a drunken fool on TV. And I hated that angle that they made us do on that TV like that, bro. It was it was probably the, the lowest point of my career is when they made us do that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that was it, another it, thing, too. Here you, you guys come back, even after the, you know, those first, those, the, that first run, and then this, and like... Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, and I wasn't around and, it, but you know, I remember seeing it and going, "Oh my God!" I mean, how how does this? Yeah, I, I can't even believe well, that he would he did it. I mean, I I, I don't well, know, Hawk, you know the situation, Hawk, but uh, you know, the, to tell you the truth, 
the first, when we were sitting in the room, it was Hawk and I and Ellering and Vince. They, Vince looked at me and they wanted me to do it. Uh-huh. And I said, I'm not doing that. He goes, what do you mean you're not doing that as entertainment? I said, I'm not doing it. I said, I have a 14-year-old, mm-hmm. right? I have a 12-year-old, and I have a 10-year-old. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it being a pillar member of my society, coaching, giving seminars on anti-drug stuff, and I'm not going to be a drunken fool, make pretend I'm on cocaine and drunk and all that stuff. I'm not doing it. And right away, Hawk, of course, it was just coming back from a suspension, says, Vince, I'll do it. Like, and Hawk did it. Now, was this a Vince Russo? Was he there the, 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 at the time? That, that Was this his angle? Vince, Pat, who came up with this? You know, it, it might, you know, Vince Russo might have been in there along with Vince. Man, I can't remember. I think it may have been, you know. Huh. But it was such a far-out stupid thing. That we well, it's like they like they, they, they like to do that edge of reality or something, but oh man, you know. Yeah, well, my first thought was, bro, to be quite honest with you, Sean, was like, who's the idiot that thought of this? Yeah. That was my first response to it. I didn't, I didn't like it at all because listen, how do you? Why would you take someone who's a number one, two, or three in your marketing sales yeah. for children for merchandise? Yeah, and and want to screw around with that? Who the guys are that were like the saviors of the day? It's like it's like putting up the bat wings in the skylight and having Batman come in when you call Hawk and I like equal to be the great equalizers, and then you have us go do something like that. It just didn't make sense. To yeah, me. well, I think they had something was, else too. Like with Scott Hall, even they did something like that where they uh, poured when he was having it, you know, in recovery, and you know had an issue, an angle where they poured beer on him or something. I mean, yeah, it just I don't know. Uh, I mean, that just doesn't. Yeah, man. Well, you know, it know, makes you know, sense. Stranger things have happened in this business, and in yeah. time, yeah. stranger things are going to happen in the future, you know. But for us at that time, being as powerful as we were, it wasn't a good time for that kind of deal. And I think that, you know, it, 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 was, it was a shame that that happened, and it wasn't a good time, and it just sent Hawk over the edge, and it just, it just wasn't good. Yeah, it set him back, right? It, that. Well, yeah, I sent him back, and, and then he, you start getting it into your head when you have those kind of places that, okay, now they're giving me carte blanche to do this, and then you uh, go ahead and do it, and then uh, you get in trouble for doing it. You know, it's like a it's, it's like a, a, a double-edged sword. You, you're going to get cut either way, <laughs> yeah. you know? Did that, was that kind of the uh, realization that was kind of the beginning and the end? Uh, well, for, you know, I tell you what. For the tag team, we, because... We we thought maybe it was going to be, but then we had one final run where we came in there, and I don't know if you remember, we came in there and wrestled Kane and Van Dam. Yeah, and and we because we we because after this time with the Rocco thing, we you know, and back then and, and doing the drunk thing, we came off, and then there was an O three, I think, right when you uh... no before O three because Hawk died in O three. Yeah. yeah, but wasn't it, so, you guys made a final? It says you made an appearance on Raw. Yeah, we in, made an uh, appearance on May 12, Raw. May 12, 2003. And, bro, and again, when that music played, it was like we never left. It was a standing ovation type of deal. And we wrestled Kane and Van Damme, had a great match. No doubt in my mind, if they would have gave us the titles that day on Raw, which they should have done it, yeah. we could have went off and running, boom, and helped the tag team division in that company go. Yeah. Because we weren't just two guys you threw together. We were a household name. And we still had it. We still looked good. We still worked out. There we go. 
But you got to understand, at that time with Hawk, he wasn't the old Hawk. Yeah. You know, Hawk had already went through two years of interferon treatment for hepatitis, right? And he beat hepatitis. Then he already went through treatment, but he already had, you know, suffered from uh, uh, cardiomyopathy one time. So Hawk, Hawk had his issues, yeah. but he overcame those issues. And this was like the last hurrah, right? Yeah. yeah. And we had the great last hurrah and did stuff like that. And it was, we thought, man, all oh, this is going to be great. And for whatever reason, they didn't want to do anything with it afterwards. I think they got ticked off because I think Kane gave Hawk a choke slam one time. They gave it the second time, and we thought we were off the air, and Hawk just got up and walked out of the ring. Uh, <laughs> it didn't lay there and die, and so he got kind of arranged for that, you know. Uh, but, but, I mean, it was – and the thing is, is like, what, four or five months later, he was dead. Uh, yeah, did, bro, it was it was did, crazy, man. You know, that was – let me tell you, the most surreal phone call a friend of mine, I don't even know Bob Muller and Bob's from Brooklyn. He's, uh, he worked with George Napolitano for the wrestling magazines. He, he takes pictures still for the uh, UK and for Japan and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and he, he, I was home vacuuming my pool in my backyard. And Bob calls, you know, hey, Joe, what are you doing? I oh, no, no, man, I'm just vacuuming the yard. He goes, has anybody called you this morning? I said, no, man, why? He goes, when's the last time you talked to Mike? I said, I talked to Mike last night about 11 o'clock. Said he was wow. packing stuff out of it for his new house with his wife, and you know they moved off the beach closer inland, and you know because of storms, the sand was like sandblasting your house and your windows. He wanted to get away from that. And, yeah, you know they just got a dog and stuff and everything else. He goes, he goes, Joe, Mike died. I said, what? Jeez. And Sean, I'll tell your listeners, I'll tell you, I always tell my kids, man, there ain't no shame in a grown man crying. Uh-huh. I sat on my deck, three hundred and 15 pounds of me all beefed up, muscled up and cried like a freaking baby because of all the ups and downs, Hawk and I had more ups and downs. Yeah. That was my brother that just passed away. You know what I mean? And and that hit me and it still hits me when I talk about it. And I talk to fans around the country about it. It was one of the hardest things I had to go through. And when I told my kids, my kids cried like baby. Oh God! Well, he was like you a know? brother or an uncle, you know. Or well, yeah, he, right? he was. He was called out. I'm Uncle Hawk, you know. And yeah. They every time we wrestled in Minnesota, or he was close, or pick each other up, pick each other up from the airport. It was always Hawk, 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 and yeah. you know we were synonymous with each other. I mean, Animal was no good without Hawk, and Hawk was no good without Animal. You know, yeah. that's just the way it was. You know, and. Was he way. in a good place at the time? I mean, it seemed like he had uh, found Bro, he was in, peace in a great and, place, yeah. a great pay, place at peace. Um, I think he died peacefully in his sleep. He, 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 you know, no doubt in my mind, after all the stuff he did in life, he was sitting at the right hand of Jesus, you know what I mean? And yeah. up there in heaven with, with all the other guys that had passed away before him. And it's, listen, man. Just think of the battle royal they could have up there right now. Oh, no, no kidding. Up there. Lord, no bro, kidding. Be, oh, the big bad thorns. Oh, that's probably why all these hurricanes are starting down here, man. <laughs> probably having you know, uh, uh, Joe may be absolutely right. Uh, I know that uh, he misses that guy every day, and, and what an incredible tag team they were. And that was just part of a, a very enjoyable more than two hours I spent with Joe Laurinaitis, uh, part of a tag team that changed professional wrestling forever. He also happens to be a great guy. Uh, Check out his new podcast, 
It's just out, and uh, it's uh, aptly named. It's called Oh, What a Rush with Road Warrior Animal Joe Laranitis. So check it out. Uh, now we get to the last clip of the best of prime time with Sean Mooney, 2017. And boy, did we wrap up 2017 with a great guest, Jacques Rougeau, uh, one of the fabulous Rougeau brothers. And I got a lot of response to this podcast. Most of, most of it, you know, very positive, uh, some not. But th- the thing that I really love about Jacques is just how candid and truly, you know, genuine he is. It made for what I think was one of the best episodes we've had so far. Uh, and in this segment, Jacques talks about just how tough his older brother Raymond is. Hey, you know, uh, you talk about Raymond and, uh, you know, he's always had a, a reputation as being this incredibly tough guy. Um, yep. Was he that tough young? And then did he uh, legitimately box? Uh, I know he's a, well, a good he, boxer, yeah, too, he, so... He did some boxing, but he was just a mean guy. He was just a guy like a I don't know guy. if you know. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure you know like uh, Morris Mabdog Vachon. Oh yeah, Mabdog. Yeah. yeah. Well, Raymond is a, 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 exactly the same thing. My brother Raymond was a guy who had. Uh, he. I've never seen my brother Raymond back down anybody. I, I remember the first year that we were there, and the first year we were in Toronto, one of our first shots with the WWF, there was a big guy, you know, uh, he, he was loudmouth in the dressing room, and he was, and he just decided to pick on us just for fun. To, his name was Ted RCD. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, okay. but, but do you remember Ted RCD? No, I don't. But you say you he's don't? A, Ted RCD, go in, the, go, in the, go in the books of the WWF in the 85, and you'll see a guy called Ted RCD. And he was a big, big bodybuilder, like, you know, huge. But, but, uh, and he came up, he must have weighed about 300 pounds on steroids. And my brother Raymond's like uh, 200 pounds wet. Anyway, so he came, uh, so he came in front of my, my, my brother, or he said something. And, uh, and he told, just told my brother, why don't you shut up? And just shut up. And everybody in the dressing room. Oh, was yeah, like, I'm looking at his picture right now. He's a monster. And he was just. He was trying to Man. break us, just trying to do some yeah. bullying, I guess, yeah. having fun. And my brother Raymond just, he sat down, like the guy, like Ted RCD said, just sat down. He waited 10 seconds. And just to give the upper level to Ted RCD in his brain that he thinks he's winning this battle. And yeah. about 10 seconds later, my brother went right in front of him, stood up in front of him. Ted RCD lifted his head up, and my brother looked at him with one of those faces that you don't want to face yeah. in an alley, in a dark alley. But he looked at Ted RCD in the face, and he said, get up. Oh. And then Tardar said, he looked at him and he just stared at him. And my brother said, get up. And I'm not going to say the words he said on the radio. And he, 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 he said a really nice something about mother. <laughs> you know, and he said, get up. <laughs> get up and then and, and, and I saw the face. And Tardar said, he never stood up. And then he looked oh. at him. He says, you piece of shit. He says, the next time you talk to me like that, he says, I'm going to kick your ass big yeah. time. And then he never did a word, nothing. And from then on, the boys already had a respect for Raymond. But, but Raymond was already known because another incident that happened in, in Montreal, i got to tell you about Raymond. Uh, there was a guy called Zarinef Leboeuf. Mm-hmm. He was a wrestler in Grand Prix wrestling those days and in Montreal. And, uh, and he wrestled my brother Armand, my younger, my older brother, but younger in the business. And he yes. was very, not experienced very much. And he got into the ring with this guy, Zeddy Neftabuff, a big guy. And he was just one of those moods where the guy didn't want to sell anything. So he got in the ring and he, he, my, everything my brother Armand was doing, he, was, he wouldn't react to it. And then he'd and slap so. him in the back and, you know, treat him like a, you know, nobody. And, 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 and uh, the next, when he came back in the dressing room, and he was a very tough guy. 
he was like a doorman in a club, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. So my brother Raymond went to see Gino Brito. I don't know if you know him by history, but yeah. Gino Brito is a great Italian wrestler like Dino Bravo in Montreal. And so anyway, so Gino Brito was a promoter then. And, uh, and my brother Raymond just went up to Gino very softly. And he said, uh, he says, is it the same card tomorrow night in another town? He says, yes. Well, he says, I want you to switch the card around. I want you to put me instead of Arma and Arma instead of me. <laughs> and Raymond got in the ring. And, and and this is an incredible story because Raymond got in the ring and, and, and then he started, he got into the ring and then he looked, he came in the middle of the ring and he looked at the Zeddy Neff, which was a tough guy. Yeah. And he looked at him in the face. He says, uh, you don't like working with my brother, huh? And then, I mean, Zeddy Neff Lebeuf said, uh, says, I don't give a shit about your brother. And he said, I don't give a shit about you. And at the same time, my brother punched him in the face. And then he uh, he backed up, and then he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you want to go? And then my brother gave him like a mule kick, a sidekick right in the kneecap. And yeah. he like almost broke his leg in two. Wow. And then my brother was a down-to-the-ground kind of guy, you know? And, uh, and, uh, and, and the rolled, he, rolled, he rolled out of the ring, and when he rolled out of the ring, he, he, he went back to the dressing room. My brother was waiting from the ring, and he got his stuff. He never showered or nothing, and he left. And on the Monday that followed that, it was the paychecks that we had to go pick up at the office. The guy sent his wife to pick up his check. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that was the end of Zadie yeah. Nefleboff, the tough guy. And that was because of my brother, Raymond. And Raymond, yeah, you're right. And I'm telling you, uh, folks, uh, there is not another nicer human being on earth than Raymond Rougeau. Every experience I ever had with him was tremendous. But Respect you know, there's something the about people, right, uh, Jacques? That there's something about people, like you said, that look. And... You didn't want to see that from him because <laughs> that, he, and I'm sure he, he, there were many times he never had to raise a fist. People just knew that this guy was not going to back down. Exactly. And I think that, and you know, I, to be honest with you, I had a rough night too one night with a cowboy Ace Horton, you know, in the ring. He didn't want to sell for me much, very much. I came back in the dressing room. I sat down. I was marked a little bit and uh, had a little bit of red stains here and there. And then he came up to me, my brother, he says, what happened? I saw nothing. He just didn't want to sell anything, you know. So he went to see uh, Tony Gurria. I can't remember who was there. And he says, I want you to book me with uh, Ace Orton tomorrow. And Ace Orton got in the ring with my brother. My brother Raymond gave him about six arm drags, three drop kicks everywhere. He's flying all over the place for my brother Raymond. It's like, and he never, Raymond never had to do nothing. He just put his name instead of mine. And uh, so, 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 so Raymond's reputation grew very, very fast. That he's small, he's short, but don't mess with him. And I'll tell you, back in those days, nobody messed with Raymond Rougeau. Uh, that's that's for sure. And, uh, you know, I know everybody wanted to hear about the infamous fight between Jacques and the Dynamite Kid. Uh, that is all covered in the podcast, along with so much more, including Jacques' run as the Mountie and the rift that he believes still exists with Vince McMahon. Yeah, great stuff. And uh, really, you should check out that podcast. Because uh, you know he talks about how all of uh, the things that happened, like the incident with Dynamite Kid, changed his life forever, and has uh, made him go on uh, to do a lot of uh, events and and uh, and helping kids. And you'll hear all about it in the podcast. Okay, so there you have it. A taste of what I believe were some of the best moments from Prime Time with Sean Mooney. Uh, if this was the first time you tuned in, I think it was a great way to find out what we uh, do here. Uh, guests who come on to the podcast uh, are not interviewed. I call it, uh, I say we have conversations. It's simple as that. 
and I hope to have many more in 2018 and that you will continue to tune in. Uh, Once again, I want to remind everybody, uh, please stay in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And you can do that by following me on Twitter, at Sean Mooney Who, or at uh, Primetime MLW. That's our other Twitter account. Or you can email me at primetime at mlw.com. Primetime at mlw.com. If you have reached out to me, you know I will get back to you. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes when you do. Please give us a rating and a review. That support goes a long way. Also, you can help support the program by utilizing our sponsors. Once again, for great seats to live events, use our good friends at SeatGeek. Just download the SeatGeek app onto your mobile device. Once you do that, great seats are just a few finger taps away. And because you are one of my listeners, you're going to get $20 off your first purchase when you use the promo code PRIMETIME. That's PRIMETIME. Well, that's going to do it for this first episode of Primetime with Sean Mooney for the new year. You know, and I have a feeling this is going to be a good one, and I pray it's going to be the same for all of you. Keep helping me spread the word as I continue to try and make your podcast, that's right, because that's what it is, a better every week. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Happy New Year. I'm Sean Mooney, and I'm out. Over 460 million people around the world have disabling hearing loss. Starkey Hearing Foundation provides hearing aids and hearing-related health care to millions of patients in over 100 countries. But they need your support to continue helping those in need. Give the gift of hearing by donating to the Listen In Campaign. Go to listenincampaign.org to donate today. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-I-N-C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N dot O-R-G.